welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, we have so much in store for you. It's going to be a jam-packed episode. You're not going to want to miss this. First, we're going to talk about the recovery trial. When can you take medicine by press release seriously, and when should you wait for the published paper? We're going to get into that. We're going to talk about the U.S. clinical trial infrastructure. We're going to talk about a provocative paper, EFS and cost of care in acute myeloid leukemia. It's not a predictor of OS, but maybe it's a predictor of cost of care. We're going to talk about why that is fantastically wrong. We're going to talk about a poll I conducted on Twitter on how long it takes to write articles and what that means for the Academy. We're going to talk about Raj Chetty and what he's doing with economics that we fail to do in medicine. And finally, we're going to talk about threatening public health officials who are just doing their job and the devastating impact that's going to have on our nation. And today's guest is Ian Tanak, who should need no introduction, a legend of the laboratory of docetaxel, of prostate cancer, and of clinical trial appraisal. You won't want to miss his thoughts on a career in medicine. So stay tuned. First up, this is our annual pledge drive. Well, what does that mean? This means that this is the second of four weeks where I'm going to bug you about supporting this podcast on patreon.com. Now, if you're the kind of fat cat who listens to this podcast, as I know many of you are, and your annual bonus is in the five-digit range, you're going to want to support this podcast because it's only right. If you're a struggling resident, then don't support the podcast. I feel too bad about that. If you don't want to support this podcast on patreon.com, well, then one day you might wake up and no longer exist because I don't really, I wonder if it's worth my time. But if you do like it and want to show your support in another way, I suppose your options include writing us a review on iTunes. A written review helps other people find this podcast if that's what they're interested in. The other thing you could do is tell a colleague particularly a colleague who happens to be in the broad field of medical oncology, surgical oncology, radiation oncology, hematology oncology, oncology pharmacy, uh, social work in oncology, anybody in the cancer space, tell them about the podcast. Tell them that they should tune in. Yeah, I guess those are, those are really just the options there. Those are the options. You can support us directly, or you can give us a review, or you can recommend us to a friend. And uh, those are your choices. So... In our twice-yearly pledge drive, you're going to hear me crow about this, and then after that, you won't hear me talk about it again. In another piece of news, Malignant, the audiobook, available on audible.com, is now fixed. Yes, I heard the complaints. Chapter 14, it had some errors. They were a few times, maybe 20 or 30 times, that I read the same sentence over again, and maybe you heard me glug, glug, glug some water. And I, just to sort of simulate what that's like. Oh, that's actually... That's some good water. Um... Must have been painful. Must have been really painful to listen to chapter 14, which I think is such a crucial chapter. It's almost a, it's like a linchpin chapter. And to listen to it with all that sipping of the water. So I'm sorry for the people who suffered through that. And there were two responses to it. So there were a lot of people who said 
that it was awful. And they left us a scathing review on Audible.com, dragging our ranking down, down, down. Dragging us down like the U.S. News and World Report cancer hospital rankings. Um, there were some other people who said it was endearing. It showed how much work went into recording an audiobook. And maybe that's true. It is a lot more effort than I thought. It is a lot more difficult to read even something that supposedly I wrote, not the medical writer. Um, but if I wrote it, it shouldn't have been so damn hard for me to spit it out. But it really was hard. I was really surprised by the order of many words in it. I was really surprised. I was like, who wrote this? Uh, because it had been a few years, honestly, since I wrote it. 2017. You know, I, on a side note, I often hear people say, um, it's interesting that um, your podcast and Malignant, uh, you know, thankfully, some people say that it is more than the podcast, but there are a lot of, you know, overlapping themes and ideas, but it is it is more than the sum of the parts, um, and uh, that your podcast led to the book. But, you know, you, you have to realize it was the entirely the opposite way. I had written the book, almost the whole draft was written when I even started making the podcast. So the book was done. So the book was there first and the podcast came second. Anyway, uh, check it out. I think now that it's fixed on Audible, uh, it's good. It's worth your time. I think if you like this podcast, you'll like it even more. Um, it's better than the podcast. It's a lot tighter and uh, it's the perfect thing when you're out on a run. Um, and if you find this link that I tweeted, which you I never find, I can never find these things on Twitter, um, you can sign up for Audible for free and you know what, we're going to add it into the email on this 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 episode. And if you sign up for free, uh, you get like a one-month trial. And don't hold me to this, but I believe you can listen to it and then deactivate your account and you won't have to pay anything. And, you know, that's not so bad for you. And then you can take that money and funnel it into our Patreon account, which I know you're, you're thinking about doing. So that's the annual pledge drive. And on that positive note, we'll shift to the next topic, the recovery trial. Okay, the recovery trial. So the recovery trial is the randomized evaluation of COVID-19 therapy, and it comes from the UK. It's a multi-arm randomized control trial that the UK, which is a topic I'm going to come to, like many good places on the planet, um, actually got their act together and realized that we have a novel pandemic illness. We can run an adaptive multi-arm randomized control trial using multiple investigational arms and uh, a, a single control arm uh, to answer many, many questions at the same time. And in the initial randomization part A, we're going to have a lapinavir, ritonavir arm. We're going to have a no additional treatment arm, of course, the control arm. We're going to have a low-dose corticosteroid arm, which we heard about this week. We're going to have hydroxychloroquine arm. We're going to have an azithro arm. Um, in part B of randomization, we're going to have no additional treatment, and we have convalescent plasma, um, which, is a, which is a factorial design, so they're randomized to both a part A and a part B. Um, and then there's an additional second randomization for patients with progressive COVID-19, where you're randomized to tocilizumab or no additional treatment. And the detailed trial protocol is available online, published May 14th. Um, and we now know the original press results of recovery, which shows dexamethasone reduced deaths by one-third in ventilated patients, by one-fifth in patients who were hospitalized receiving supplemental oxygen, and that there was no benefit among patients who did not require oxygenation or respiratory support with a hazard ratio that was tilting the other direction. 
Based upon these findings, the press release announced that the trial um, was closed, that they'll be seeking publication, and in the UK that day, they announced that they would in fact be treating patients with 6 milligrams once per day of dexamethasone um, based on the results of this at least 6,000 person but even larger randomized control trial. So, okay, well, it's medicine by press release was something that got said. So I guess I want to say a few things. One, you know, um, this sounds terrific. And in part two of this discussion, I'm going to talk about what this means for clinical trials in the U.S., the French, the U.K. Um, I'm going to come to that next. But first, let's just talk about the finding. Um, what do I have right now? I got a press release. Does it have everything I want in it? No, absolutely not. I want more stuff. I want more goodies. I want to know my table one facts. I want to know a little bit more about who's in this study. I want to see the Kaplan-Meier curves. I want to see the, you know, I want to see the results. You listen to this podcast, you know, I'm not the kind of person who doesn't want to read this study. Come on, people. You know who I am. You know what I care about. What, what, what do I live for reading these studies? It's very sad, but it's, it's all I got. It's very sad. Um, okay, so, so I want this study, but I do have a 35-page protocol. Does that make me happy? Yeah, you bet it does. I'm glad I have a 35-page protocol. I don't often have a 35-page protocol. In fact, I often don't have a protocol at all. So some people were wondering, oh, I wonder if these subgroups are actually pre-specified. Well, you don't have to wonder that. It's in the protocol that was published a month ago. It's right there. So you got that. You got a protocol, and you got the top-line press release results. Okay. And then folks said, including some very distinguished folks, including... I think Atul Gawande was quoted as saying that, you know, we got to hold off. You know, we've had so many kind of false starts with COVID-19. We had Surgisphere, for Christ's sakes, just recently. You know, who knows? Until it's published in peer-reviewed literature. And even then, you know, um, who knows? Well, of course, you know, being published in the peer-reviewed literature, the irony of Surgisphere is that that's no guarantee that you've passed some critical benchmark because that blew up right in your face. But there's so many things different between this and Surgisphere um, and between this and Medicine by Press release that it kind of blew my mind that people were saying, oh, how can you even compare the two? And so I had a, a thread yesterday. I says, look, what does Medicine by Press release mean? Um, and there were two press releases that came out yesterday. We saw that abemocyclib uh, improves IDFS and Monarchy, Eli Lilly drug. And that's going to be a provocative thing that I'm going to bring back on plenary session the moment they publish that paper. I'm probably going to rip it to little bits because I smell a lot of things wrong with that study. Uh, even now, yeah, even now I smell things wrong with that study because I know the primary endpoint, I know what they were aiming for, et cetera, et cetera. And I know the results of some other CD4-6 inhibitor studies in that same space. Okay. Um, that's medicine by press release. If anyone starts giving a bemocyclib based on that press release, that's a mistake, you know? IDFS has a lousy, absent correlation with OS in meta-regressions of, of early-stage breast cancer. That's medicine by process. That's a mistake. Dexamethasone uh, in COVID that requires supplemental oxygenation and hospitalization or mechanical ventilation, that's, that's something you got to act on today. And, and here's why. Here's a few differences. One, dexamethasone costs $12 a month. Uh, abemocyclib costs $12,000 a month, Okay. That's a bit of a difference. That's a thousand times difference, okay? One trial, the recovery trial, is run by academics from Oxford who don't have a financial stake in the outcome. They're not on big dexamethasone's payroll. The other is run by a corporation with billions of dollars at stake by academics, I put that in quote unquote, who are likely paid by the company. And it's designed with the explicit goal of duping, I mean, convincing the folks at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, their seal of approval. 
One trial has a 35-page published protocol that you can read right now, and it's available on the internet, many, many websites. The other doesn't have a published protocol. And as we know with the Beacon trial, might end up with only a redacted one. Am I right, trialists? Uh, redacted, huh? One trial recovery improves all-cause mortality, the most important endpoint there is, in critically ill patients in the midst of a global pandemic. The other improves invasive disease-free survival in women with early-stage breast cancer, status post-surgery, who mostly are probably cured, um, and IDFS, of course, is a recently invented endpoint that has a lousy correlation with overall survival and meta-regression, and if we're perfectly honest, it's not a direct measure of people living longer, living better. Or, or. So, Anyway, back to the point. One trial has very few ways to game it because you can read the protocol. The other has infinite many ways to game it, distort it, or bias it based on how often they ascertain the endpoint, etc., etc. What are the rules for IDFS? It's a surrogate. In short, medicine by press release is not when you adopt dexamethasone, when you can read the protocol, you know the Oxford group is credible, that this was a part of a um, multi-arm randomized control trial that's run in a pandemic. Um, that's a very credible finding. The opposite is a finding that really requires further probing. Um, one you got to act on today and the other one you got to wait for the paper. Okay. Um, some people pointed out that, you know, well, why do we have to live in this world where they don't publish a preprint? I mean, they have the stats. They can have the intro and discussion written. They can post the article in like 24 hours on this preprint server, which is the the favorite place to post good and bad articles in the age of COVID. And I want to say, yeah, I absolutely agree. We need like a, a new sort of model where we are committed to posting preprints at the same time as press release. There's no doubt about it. But right now, you know, right now you got a choice, which is they didn't do that. And you can be unhappy about that. I am unhappy about that. I wish they did do that, but I have a choice. Am I going to give dexamethasone to the patient who fits the inclusion criteria as detailed in the protocol? Or am I not going to give dexamethasone to that person? And if I don't give it, I don't make the trialist write any faster, and I don't make New England Journal publish it any faster. And if I do give it, I save lives. If I don't give it, people die. So why on earth would I not give it? Okay, well, then I was reading more Twitter, and I saw that more and more people were piling on that, you know, we shouldn't give it until we read the manuscript. And I was like, what planet am I living on where people are holding that view? And I said, it's totally wrong. It will lead to preventable death. It's a gross misunderstanding of probability. And I hate to say this, it's probably unethical. That last part they really anchored onto, which we're going to come back to. Um, so I want to, again, go through the points. One... You can read the protocol. That's something that you never get the chance to do, and you can do it here. Two, these are credible academics free of financial bias. Three, it's a 20-cent pill. Four, it's all-cause mortality. Five, the effect size rivals the best things we do in biomedicine. Six, um, let me give you the best reason to adopt this right now. For the last six months, we have been letting doctors in every hospital in this country give all sorts of madness therapies. They're given antibiotics. They're given treatments for this, for that. They're given Z-Packs. They're given Tamiflu. They're giving histamine antagonists. They're giving HIV drugs. They're giving experimental agents. They're giving IL-6 blockers. They're even giving TPA. TPA, a drug with a therapeutic window as large as an interior cabin on a cruise ship. Docs are giving these unproven combinations all the time. And 
what have anyone said? Did anyone say, you need to wait for the published manuscript before you give those combinations? They said nothing. It's all dead silence. You had Valentin Fuster on a podcast giving 5,000 people therapeutic anticoagulation, no data at all. And now you've got a protocol, a press release, a credible organization, a 20 cent pill, an all cause mortality benefit. And let's say, let's say there's, this is the one in a 10,000 chance that this is some fabricated grand fabrication. The UK have faked it all and it's going to come out in peer review. Like they couldn't catch Surgisphere, but they're going to catch these, they're going to catch these con artists, okay? Let's just say your, 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 your conspiracy theory that your Oxford invented, they just fake the whole thing. The whole thing is wrong. There's some fundamental flaw here and we're going to catch them in peer review, which would be amazing, by the way, since we couldn't even catch Surgisphere and they had more patience than anybody else, okay? By a lot. Um, okay, so you catch them in that. W- what was the mistake you made? You gave two weeks of dex, six to a few people. It's certainly not going to increase death. There's no, there's nobody believing that. And it's certainly not worse than you give in kitchen sink of all sorts of random things like every single, every single publication of every case series that is ever published in any preprint server or, I mean, are you out of your mind? What, what kind of Pascal's wager says not to give this drug while you wait for a published article that you're going to print and then not read for four weeks anyway. When you, What are you talking about? Not give this drug. Are you out of your mind? What logic says wait? No, this is, yeah, of course, they should have put a preprint out. But, you know, why are you going to take that out on the patient and not deprive him of the drug? This doesn't, this doesn't hurt the trialists. I mean, these are two separate things. And I guess I'd say, like, I, I just don't even know what to say. Like, what, what has happened? What has happened with COVID? I'm going to talk about in part two, like, the trials that we're not doing, which I think is a f- huge thing that angers me, especially as an American, which I am. And it's nothing against you great folks in UK. We have so many people listening to this podcast in the UK, and I love you all, and you're doing great work. And I love the Germans for what you're doing, and I'm going to talk about that more. But gosh, you know, I have a lot of national pride too, and this is a great country, and we are a great at science and medicine, and we didn't do this study. We're going to talk about that in part two. Okay, so but what is going on where you got doctors saying, nah, it's okay to be cautious, it's okay to not give it until I read the paper. I mean, one, half these people, I don't believe they're even going to read the full, I, I know for sure they're not going to read the full paper. Come on, people. I mean, so many times, so many times, I know you're not reading the paper. But but to do that uh, in this calculus with a, with a cheap drug, with like uh, almost a, a one in 10,000 chance it's a fraud. And even if it is a fraud, there's like no chance you're going to harm somebody because this is a relatively benign medication of steroids. Um, I mean, what? I don't even know what to say. It's just a total, total fiasco. And this website, Twitter, just allows people to say this kind of nonsense. And you get a few sort of big names saying it and a lot of people piling on. Um, and it's just a disaster. I mean, people are going to die because people are too to know what is credible and not credible. I mean, I want to just say, like, what this really makes me think about is medical education. Like, we are not training doctors to be good critical thinkers. And when you're not trained to be a good critical thinker, it's so easy to adopt the stance of, I'm going to be hypercritical about everything. And that's not a good stance either, because if you have that stance, you are going to kill people right now because you're irrationally critical. 
you're not going to find anything in the paper that's going to really change what you say. I highly doubt that that's the case. Um, somebody made this point, which is, you know, you got to cut us some slack because we just had a big COVID retraction in the major journals. So of course, we're going to be a little heightened caution. And I say that's unfortunate, but anchoring on that is a form of last case bias, which often occurs in clinical medicine. It's exactly that. It's a last case bias. You are just got your hopes dashed by by the folks at Surgisphere. They just broke your heart, and now you're taking it out on the folks at Oxford who never did anything wrong to you. They never hurt you like that. Don't take it out on them, and don't take it out on the patients. You're not helping anybody. And then somebody said, you know, a lot of people got upset where they didn't like the words probably unethical, not to give it. They said, you know, how can it be probably unethical when I haven't read the paper? Well, It is probably unethical, okay, because the calculus makes no sense at all to not give it today. What are what what is the what is the downside to giving it? There's a super small chance it's this is gonna be wrong. There's a huge chance this is gonna hold up, okay, based on all the sort of factors I've delineated. It is a dirt cheap medicine. It is not going to be increasing mortality. It's impossible for it to be doing that. You're already giving things more potent. And a lot of people are already giving higher doses of steroid. There's no sound reason not to do this, act upon this now. If you say that in a public-facing forum, you're doing a disservice. And, and you can say all that and simultaneously think that we need a new culture and have preprints right away. Like, those aren't two separate things. We're in this situation we're in. This is the way it is. I didn't make it this way. They dumped it the way they dumped it. I got to make the choice. Give Dex or not give Dex. That's a doctor's choice. That's all I can do. I can pray for a better world, but I don't have. I don't live in that world. I don't have the luxury. I can give Dex or not give Dex. If I don't give Dex, I don't hurt the Oxford investigators. They don't start writing faster. I just hurt the patient. Okay? Um, should we also have a culture where we get preprints right away? Absolutely. Yeah, we should. We're not there yet, but we should. That's a screw up, okay? Now, let's talk about the next part of this talk. Gosh, how disappointing it is to be in the United States. You know, so many people called me and they were like, God, what an embarrassment, you know? What an embarrassment that we have. We have seven times as many COVID patients, seven times as many patients as the UK. And you need to tell me, we can't answer the question, if dexamethasone, six milligrams POQ day, improves all-cause mortality. We can't even answer that question. What a, just an embarrassment. Just a, just an embarrassment that w- what, what we have become. We do not have a commitment to running randomized controlled trials in this country. And we can, and this is, COVID is just compressing 10 years of all the problems in medicine into six months so you can see it. And this is what happens. The UK, with with one-seventh the patient load that we do, is answering a question that's going to save a lot of lives in a super simple study. And we cannot do that. What are we doing? We're running a randomized control trial of remdesivir, which, by the way, is a going to be an incredibly costly on-patent um, drug that Gilead could run their own randomized trial to. But you know what? They're running a trial of five versus 10 days because they know we're running the trial of the drug versus placebo. We're doing the R&D work for them. We're just subsidizing their R&D agenda. And and what have we added to get to this drug? We've added some Me Too Jack 2 inhibitor that 
I forget the name of the drug, that is branded and super costly. And that's our new thing. We're, that's what we're testing. Um, what are they testing? They're testing convalescent plasma. What are we doing? We're giving convalescent plasma to 3,000 people in a JAMA paper, uncontrolled study. What are they doing? They're doing a randomized trial. Of course they are. What are we doing? We're publishing 12 case series for every new virus that we're giving more convalescent plasma. What are, what are they doing? They're testing tocilizumab. What are we doing? We have a Genentech study running, but you know who knows where that is. Um, what are the French doing? The French are doing discovery. What did they tell us? They told us hydroxychloroquine doesn't work. What are we doing? We're doing the study that came out of Minnesota on hydroxychloroquine. Well, that's good. Good for the U.S. Oh, except it wasn't funded by the NIH. The authors are doing it on a shoestring budget and, you know, not their fault, but, you know, not perfect either. The primary endpoint is, do you feel sick like you have COVID? It's not like, do we swab you when you have COVID? The primary endpoint is, you think you got COVID, you feel a little sick. Okay. I mean, that's kind of a little cheeky way to put it, but it's not a... It's not a PCR-confirmed COVID. That's the kind of clinical trial we're running. They're running the right clinical trials in Europe. This is a total embarrassment for this great nation. We should be running the moment COVID drops. You're going to shut down an economy. You're going to pour $500 billion into no-payback loans. And you don't want to pay any money to run randomized controlled trials that answer questions that are extremely obvious with cheap, available drugs. We could have randomized laying on your belly with a nasal cannula. We could have randomized different ventilatory settings. We could randomize tocilizumab. We could have randomized anticoagulation. We could have had a clinical trials infrastructure. We're going to give $500 billion. I'm going to come back to this with the Raj Chetty point. But by all available evidence has done nothing, nothing. Nothing for unemployment rates based on this elegant work by Raj Chetty I heard today. And we're not going to invest in the clinical trials infrastructure. This is just such a such a disappointment. And, you know, people who call me, they were like, they just hands in their face. You know, and it's nothing about the UK. Kudos to the UK. They have a system. They have a, a place that actually runs correctly. Um where they can answer clinical questions. But, you know, if this is the United States now, where are we going to be in 10 years? Where are we going to be in 20 years? We're going to get our asses kicked. This is just getting your ass kicked by other countries answering simple questions. When you're needy, you have the most COVID cases globally. You can't answer simple questions. It's a total embarrassment. And it's nothing about this. Somebody said, somebody was like saying, you know, it's not a competition. Of course, it's not a competition. But, you know, we have to pull our own. Uh, we have to contribute to scientific knowledge. And we're not helping anybody when we just dump kitchen sink approaches. And that, to me, ties into the discussion of should we use corticosteroids? Because to have this, 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 this audacity that we want to read the published paper when we're not running anything that's comparable to what they're doing, and, and we're just dumping drugs in people all the time, every day. In fact, if somebody knows a case report of a patient with COVID on a vent who's not getting an unproven drug, please email me. I've not seen a single report. They're not getting an unproven drug. They're all getting an unproven drug. And now you don't want to give a DEX because you're not sure? What What logic is this? That's us. And then they're running the right trials. And then the reason I, it makes you think, it's, it's the same with Stampede trial. They're running Stampede in prostate cancer. We're running, what, 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 is, this, what is this? The profound, global profound trial run by by AZ. Wow, that's a terrible trial. I mean, I just talked to somebody else who works for a cooperative group. You know, they say, quote, we don't have the funding or mechanisms to do the types of trials the NHS just did. What a, just a disgrace. Just a disgrace. Just a disgrace. I mean, 
You got to someday get a politician fired up on this issue. This is, you know, all these moonshots. Oh, that's what they're, they're, they want to talk about moonshot. Here's a moonshot. Have a system where when there's a once in a hundred year event that is a catastrophic medical event, you can run randomized control trials. It's a very simple idea, but you don't want to do it. And I fear that one of the big reasons why we don't want to do these things is because this is a nation that is built building a medical apparatus that seeks to enrich patented for-profit drugs and not answer questions about cheap drugs. Somebody else made the joke, well, if we had an adaptive randomized trial like recovery, it wouldn't be dexamethasone. Everything would have a MAB in it and it would all be on patent. And it was a joke, but there's a lot of truth in that. We'd be running the, you know, remdesivir and then whatever this JAK2 inhibitor is that I've, it's not one we use in cancer. It's the RA drug. We're going to just be running branded costly drugs. It's not a good system. It's really makes me sad. It makes me very, very very sad that our legacy, you know, I said it, I said it, I said it online, UK, they're going to be known for recovery. The French, they're going to be known for discovery. And we're going to be known for surgosphere. And that's going to be our global contribution. And that is not good enough. Um, we have more cases, we would have a faster event rate, we'd get the answer sooner. I don't know what to say about that. All right, enough. Raj Chetty. Now this Raj Chetty's a smart guy, man. You know, it's really a smart cookie. I guess, I don't know, what's his bio? Harvard undergraduate, three years. PhD, Harvard economics, three years. Went to Berkeley, was the youngest ever tenured professor there. Went back to Harvard, was the youngest ever tenured professor there. Published key articles in economics on every single issue. Uh, won the John Bates Clark, won the MacArthur Genius at the age of like 32, 33. And now, you know, is... Eventually, it's a matter of when, but not if he's going to win the Nobel Prize. This guy's a smart cat, um, and he had a great little, um, great little policy forum for Princeton University that I tuned into. Uh, the only good thing about about online lectures, and um, it showed that uh, it, you know just a ton of really good data on purchasing patterns rich people spending, poor people spending, what happened in the wake of stimulus checks. He showed very clear data that that $500 million cash grab, um, no payback loans to keep your, uh, to keep your employees, um, was almost exclusively used by people who had no intention of laying off their workforce anyway. Thus it's a $500 million, just a waste, just a total waste of money. That's the kind of that's the kind of bold, decisive actions we take uh, instead of funding a clinical trial apparatus, of course. Um, uh, that and, and you know just great data. And what struck me about it is, you know, Raj Chetty has day by day spending data that he has put together, pulled together, and you can look at spending on different classes of goods. There's you know this economic data by state, by region, by zip code. You can look at ink, you know, all these things you can look at, and and you know. In the heat of the pandemic, if you asked us how many people died yesterday in New York City, the answer was you'll learn about it in two to three weeks. I mean, we have a total, just a, a failure to even have simple data. What percentage of patients on the vent in New York City received a dose of tocilizumab? If you want to answer that question, do you know how, how I mean, it would be more than a year of, I think, almost full-time labor to answer that simple question. What kind of a, what are we doing? What are we doing? We need to have a Raj Chetty of medicine. We need to have 
an infrastructure where we can provide day by day granular data to answer simple questions like how many people how many people are getting tocilizumab off label what's the answer how many people got it yesterday we we we're we're so far from that these are the kinds of choices societies make as to whether or not they're going to be leaders in science and medicine or whether or not they're going to be followers um we i mean it just baffles me that that the paradoxes we live in in cancer medicine there's so much interest in the microbiome for whatever stem cell transplant for and sorry to the one person i know who listens who studies that um to prostate cancer to this that and the other which means basically that you can sequence stool in a hundred cancer patients and tell me the precise fraction of the different types of bugs that are in there which that's about all i know about it we have budget for that but we don't have a budget in a global pandemic to run a clinical trial where we can ask if should we should i give this person steroid or not this that to me is of just a really misaligned thinking about where our prioritization is and if you really want to be a dominant science and medicine nation which i think all nations should aspire to and 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 give that knowledge to other nations because that's part of being a good nation um you got to do better than that so that's what i thought about when i listened to raj chetty i was like gosh just a blows my mind that we have no Raj Chetty. Next segment, Twitter polls. In the recent weeks, I put out a few Twitter polls and I've gotten some very interesting answers. So one was, there's so many people online saying that, you know, if you tweet on social political issues, you're going to get pushback. You might even not get ranked for residency, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, whoa, easy. You know, I I doubt that that's the case, especially, you know, in the current climate where there are a lot of just causes and people are, I think, acting in a fair way and they are have some real legitimate feelings and and they're right. I mean, so I don't, you know, so anyway, so I'm sympathetic. Um, and so I, you know, I, I worry about people who feel like, oh, if I put my social political opinions out there, I'm going to face professional repercussions. So I did a little poll. You know, uh, it says recently for several topics, concern was raised that, you know, if you tweet your opinion out there, you're going to get some professional repercussions. I'm curious, have you personally experienced that? And if so, what? And so the answer was 70%, no repercussions. 15% boss spoke to or scolded me. So I think that that, that does happen at times. 11% asked to modify content. And then just 2% led to job change. Somebody who knows a fair bit about this topic, which I do. I would say that I, and and I surveyed some people privately, that it is almost never social political. It is almost always, for instance, somebody was critical of a study that was done by a very senior faculty member at that institution. They got the boss chatted with them. Somebody was critical of um, a unproven idea that was the core theme of a massive fundraising campaign for the institution they uh, got a little bit of scolding. Uh, somebody was critical of uh, unproven medicine that uh, the institution made a lot of cash on. They got a scolding and maybe kept doing it and maybe they got pushed people the wrong way. Uh, somebody, those kinds of things. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that I think in every example, nobody was told you shouldn't have tweeted or commented about that social, political, super important thing to you. It was always, you shouldn't have tweeted or comment about the usual useless study that some colleague of yours did or our fundraising campaign. You know, it had to do with the things that honestly 
are not in the news today and a lot of people just don't care about and that honestly aren't, aren't as important. Um, so I guess what I would say is I hope that this is a reassurance that people should go out and speak their mind. Next poll. Oh, this poll really fascinated me. It's called Survey for Academics. Someone asks you to write a thousand words with references on the topic and focus of your expertise. How long does it take you? So I just asked a few questions, you know, three, three pieces of things. You got to write a thousand word article about whatever it is you do, your thing. Um, then you got to write a 6,000 word review article about, again, your thing, the thing that you do, your thing, whatever your thing is, that's the thing. And then you got to write a 30 page grant proposal. Okay. So, and so, I, you know, I gave a bunch of ranges and, you know, I, I had to like put a new poll out because everyone was blowing the tops out of my ranges. So basically the bottom line is to write a thousand words on your experience. Um, almost nobody can do that in less than an hour. Most people will take them between one and five hours to do it, but a third of people, five to 10 hours and a third of people more than 10 hours. Okay. To write a 6,000 word review article. This blows me away. 8% less than 10 hours, 20% 10 to 20 hours, 30% 20 to 40 hours, and 42%, which is the plurality of over 40 hours. So to write a 6,000 word essay on your thing takes you over 40 hours, which is a full work week, Monday through Friday, all day. You're doing nothing but writing this review article and you're not done on Friday. 30 page grant application, the answer is over 240 hours was the most common answer. Almost nobody can do it in less than 80 hours, just two full work weeks. 240 hours, six full work weeks. I guess I don't want to, you know, annoy anybody, but the reality is on all of these things, I'm no personally, I will score on like the low side of this. Not only that, I really even struggle to imagine that it's taking somebody, I mean, I just can't even imagine. And I talked to some of my colleagues and I asked them and they're like, you know, I think people are like inflating. I mean, people like, you know, it's often easy to inflate how much time you spend on stuff. Um, they're like, I don't believe it's possible that, I mean, like you come to work on Monday at 8 a.m. and you just do like eight to four, 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 five days in a row. And all you're doing is writing that review article and you're still not done. That's the that's the plurality, 42% of people. That's what they're saying. And this person was like, that's just not possible. Like, you should be done. I mean, like, are they including the time they're thinking about it at home? And like, and I, I mean, so I, I'm baffled. But I guess, it. I mean, but the other option is, I mean, you got to take people at their work. Maybe this is true. Maybe there's some truth to it. And I guess I would say that I think I'm finally putting my finger on, I think, what is at the core frustration for many people in academics, which is, it takes too long to write things. And when I was a college student, I also majored in philosophy. I had to take a lot of philosophy classes. And I was a lazy person, which probably no surprise to many people um, who know me, that I wouldn't do the essays until the very last minute. And so it was not uncommon that I'd have on Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday, the total of something like 200 pages double-spaced of essays to do for three classes. And I got really good at just generating that amount of stuff, just writing it. And and I think that the biggest barrier to writing is you're just always worried that you're not saying it perfectly. And I think the thing you got to get over is that's okay. You just spit it. You just put it out there and that's it. That's it. It's done. And it's never gonna be perfect. And I and I hate to tell a little secret. There are a lot of faculty members like myself, who will edit your manuscript like a lot.
I mean, I like to do that. There are other people I know who are worse than me because I'm, I'm an editor, but I'm not an editor again the second time. Like, well, it's one and done, you know? Um, there are a lot of people who like to edit and edit and edit and edit, okay? And they're not making it better. It's just the same. They're just changing things for their own preference, and they've lost their mind because it's just the same on the seventh draft as it is on the second draft. And every time I have to work with such a person, I'd rather argue with somebody about dexamethasone because it's just so painful to have somebody just keep editing this thing. And I'm like, you're not making it better. Why do you think you're making it better? And I'm like, if I, if I blinded somebody to the order of edits, no one will be able to tell what's the seventh or second edit. If they can't tell which is the seventh edit, that's not a better edit. When I read like articles about somebody who's a writer and they're like, I had to write this paragraph 200 times. I was like, well, you wrote it 190 times too many. 10 times. I mean, I can't imagine. I bet the Gettysburg Address was written in three or four drafts. I mean, it can't be that. You can't be writing 200 times. People have written perfect things. Perfect things that they probably didn't take that much time on. So, you know, that's that's the issue of academics, which is, I would say, you have to learn to write faster. And that is a psychological barrier, just like a long-distance bike ride or a long-distance run is. It's usually not a physicality thing. It's not a skill thing. It's just being comfortable with, this is it. I'm going to write this much stuff out and cite these things that I know. And, you know, maybe it could be better, but the reality is probably not. Um, and, and I'm comfortable with that. And I think that, so when I read these things that I guess I would say, I think my personal habits are very different. It also explains why a lot of people often say to me like, oh, I can't believe, you know, you did all these things. And I was like, oh, it didn't take me that much time because, you know, I work with good people mostly and they did most of the work. And I just said, oh, they do some edits at the end. And how long could that take somebody? It took like a couple hours at most, you know? Um, so anyway, that's, that's an interesting poll. All right, now the gem, EFS. All right, this is a gem. It's called Clinical Value of Event-Free Survival in Acute Myeloid Leukemia. This has got everybody, all the movers and shakers of the MD Anderson group in leukemia. And it is in blood advances. And it's got, let me count the authors for you. 21 authors. This has got 21 authors. That's the way I like it. It takes 21 people to do this, which is great. Because when you hear what's problematic about it and you realize that not a single one of these 21 people thought of this or said anything, it's going to blow your mind. So I call this paper fantastically wrong. Here's what it says. Abstract. The value of vent-free survival as an endpoint in acute leukemia has been questioned, and for good reason, because we have surrogate validation studies that show it's actually not a great predictor of overall survival. Also, this is leukemia, and it usually doesn't take you that long, often in AML, to measure improvements in overall survival. Can we think about mitostorin people, uh, the cooperative group study that shows a survival benefit? Come on, we don't need a surrogate here, okay? Improvement in EFS, however, may decrease the use of healthcare. In this retrospective study, we identified 400 patients with AML who were treated on first-line therapy trials and had OS between 2 and 36 months. They also had to die to enter this study. We captured healthcare use from diagnosis until death or until the patient was censored at stem cell transplantation. We then used correlation and regression analysis to determine the relationship between healthcare use per month of life and EFS. So that's it. That's what they did. So 
they build a cohort, a retrospective cohort, medical record review. They take patients with AML who were treated between 2003 and 2013. Um, EFS was from the time of study treatment to when primary refractory disease was confirmed, uh, relapse or death. Um, Patients with OS uh, ranging from two to 36 months were included. You had to have an EFS greater than two months, um, suffered an adverse event and died by the time of data collection. Okay, these are their selection filters. Um, okay, EFS cutoff of two months were chosen because patients typically need two cycles of therapy before determining that induction had failed to achieve a response. Okay, well, that's kind of, a, I'm sure they did that for some artifactual reasons, but data reasons. Um, because healthcare may dramatically increase after stem cell transplant, EFS was censored at the time of stem cell transplant. <laughs> That's like, <laughs> like, what are you doing? What are you doing? So you're like, oh, we're going to add up all the healthcare costs. Um, but, you know, probably people who have like longer EFS are more likely to be transplanted, but we're not going to add those costs in. Like those costs don't count. We're just going to add the costs like up until the transplant. So you, what you're saying is you're not going to add up all the costs. <laughs> so you're like adding some of the costs and the costs you're not adding are probably more likely to happen in people whose EFS is longer. So it's like 100% going to cut against your finding. And had you added it, you probably wouldn't have gotten the result you got. But okay, anyway, that's the way you want to do it. Okay, that's the way you want to do it. There's even a bigger problem than that we're going to get to. Um, Medical records were reviewed to determine the amount of health care from the diagnosis until death or when you were censored for stem cell transplant. This includes clinic visits, ED visits, hospitalizations, blah, 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 blood cell transfusions, blah, blah, blah. Um, we carefully reviewed correspondence, and then they even added it all up. Overall health care use was the sum of the mentioned data points. They added up all that stuff put together, the health care use stuff. Um, and um, And like you know, like, of course it's like, you know, I mean, how, do, how how would you add these things, right? So one blood cell transfusion, that's a one. One emergency room visit at 2 a.m., that's a two. That's a one transfusion plus an visit plus, a, um, you know, um, uh, an imaging study. That's a three. An invasive procedure like a bone marrow, that's a four. These are all just things that you can add together. Just one, two, three, four. <laughs> um. Okay, and so, you know, what do they find? They find across the board, when you use their formula of adding in healthcare use, these items, these things, as numbers, you add those together, you divide them by the number of months somebody lives, healthcare use per OS month, that's the outcome measure. And of course, if somebody got a bone marrow transplant, you just stop adding to the pile 100%. And then on the x-axis, you plot the number of months of EFS they got initially, and you show super clearly that there is a correlation that the longer your EFS was initially, the fewer things you had done to you per month you were alive. Unless, of course, you had transplanted, in which case we didn't count any of that stuff. So their argument is that even though EFS doesn't tell you if someone's going to live longer, it does tell you that they're going to use less stuff and therefore, EFS is a valuable endpoint in and of itself. It is a, as the title says, it has a clinical value of EFS in acute myeloleukemia. Okay, so I don't like, where do I even start to explain how muddled the thinking is here? I mean, let's just start at the, the outset. Why are they doing this? Well, these are authors who run a lot of registration clinical trials for the FDA, and they run a lot of randomized clinical trials. And sometimes you run a randomized clinical trial and you find the new drug doesn't improve overall survival. And this pesky FDA is going to come and they're going to say, it doesn't improve overall survival. We're not going to prove it. And you're going to say, well, it improved event-free survival. 
And then they're going to say, well, event-free survival doesn't correlate with overall survival. So it's, and plus we also know overall survival is not improved and, and so we're not going to prove it. And then the, you're like, do you got any health related quality of life? And they're like, no, we don't, or it's not improved, but you know, improving event-free survival, we lower the rate of, um, healthcare use, um, based on this other paper of ours. And the FDA say, oh yeah. So EF is a surrogate for healthcare use. So yeah, yeah, we'll approve it. Is that what's going to happen? No, see, the FDA is going to say something different. They're going to say, oh, you ran a health, you ran a randomized trial, huh? Why don't you just add up the healthcare use and the arm you gave the drug to and compare it against the arm you didn't? Total healthcare spending. And why don't you add in the cost of the drug and then just add in the hospitalizations? What am I getting at? You don't, you don't develop a surrogate endpoint, EFS, to measure or predict things that you could directly measure that occur sooner. You see, if you want to show your drug decreases hospitalizations, you can measure how many people are hospitalized getting the drug or not getting the drug. You don't need to measure something that happens later, event-free survival, and then argue they must have gotten less hospitalizations because their EFS is longer. It took you longer to measure. These authors are the first authors in human history that have made a surrogate endpoint that takes longer to ascertain than the thing itself they want to predict, which is healthcare utilization. They could directly keep a running tab of healthcare utilization, and you would know it all the time and sooner than you know EFS. It would be like somebody says, a great surrogate for your cholesterol level is if in 10 years from now, we cut open your leg and we look to see how much plaque is in your femoral artery. And you might say, wow, and why would you do that again? And they say, well, we, it wouldn't tell you how long you lived. Of course, it doesn't tell you that. Okay, so why would you cut into my leg and then look to see the plaque? Oh, well, tell us what your cholesterol level was 10 years ago. Oh, I see. So um, why didn't you just check my cholesterol? Oh, oh, oh um, and that's the, like, the huge problem of this study. There, I don't understand how so many authors, 21 people, are doing a validation study for us EFS to predict things that you can measure directly and that occur before EFS. You can just keep a running tab. And if you run a new drug trial, you can ask if it didn't improve survival and didn't improve health-related quality of life, did it lower total healthcare spending? And the answer is, the answer will be no, because you have to include the price of the drug, which is going to offset all this stuff because these drugs are so, so costly. It's going to offset a blood transfusion here or there. And if not getting the blood transfusion actually leads to a better quality of life, then you can show that with health-related quality of life. Not to mention the methods of censoring for, for stem cell transplant is just like, it's like they were doing that just to get the result they wanted because having a longer EFS means you're more likely to be transplanted. If anything, you, your cost might be higher. And if you're getting more transplants and not living any longer, that's like way worse for the healthcare system. That's like way more healthcare utilization and it's worse for the patient. So what, what is this? This is, and oh, and then I forgot the other thing. It's not even a trial level study. They're not even showing that in trials where EFS is better, spending was lower. It's an individual patient level study, which really just tells you that people who have bad biology and they're like, cancer is going to come rip roaring back. They require a lot of blood cell transfusions and a lot of other stuff before bad things happen to them. And even after bad things happen to them, because of course they have bad biology. This is like a tautology. It tells you something you already know that if your EFS is not good, you're going to get a lot of healthcare stuff to kind of keep you going versus somebody who's doing like really swimmingly, they're not going to be getting all this healthcare. This proves absolutely nothing. And nobody, 
nobody recognizes this on Twitter. I mean, just again, um, you know, somebody use this to say that EFS is a good predictor of lowering healthcare costs. It's not, it doesn't do that. It doesn't show that at all. It's the craziest thing you've ever heard in my life. Um, what's the take home message here? The take home message is simple. This is conceptually broken. It's conceptually just totally broken. They authors are trying so hard to get the FDA to use EFS as an endpoint for drug approval. They have not even sat down to think about if this makes any sense at all. They're the only people on the earth who have found a surrogate endpoint that predicts something you knew before the surrogate was measured. They have invented a backward surrogate endpoint, an endpoint that takes longer to measure than the thing itself, and they're censoring it for the super costly thing that would really tilt it the other way. It is unjustifiable. I don't know what they're doing. It is, the, the title is this, The Clinical Benefit of Event-Free Survival in Acute Myeloid Leukemia, a Surrogate for Overall Survival or Meritorious in Its Own Right. And they, they, like, they think it's meritorious in its own right. They don't know what they're, what are they doing? What are you doing? Oh, that's the abstract title. Sorry. That's the that was the abstract title. The the paper the paper took it down a notch. They say the clinical value of event free survival. Anyway, you know, this doesn't prove anything. This is like a tautology. People with EFS longer use less products before they pass away. Um, when you only count certain products, but you don't count products that are typically used after a transplant, which is typically done in people whose EFS is longer. If you did count those, then it might be the other way, but we didn't count those because that would be super unfair because then it would be no contest. Like people with longer EFS might use more products. So we, obviously we can't count those products. We can only count the products and procedures before that. Um, and of course we would use something that takes longer to measure to predict that than measuring it directly, which we could easily do. And that's why you should approve our drug. So that's the argument that's being made in this paper, which is conceptually broken, illogical, <laughs> just a just really bad and you know the conflict of interest disclosure is a bit on the long side so one wonders what motivated reasoning is going on here so anyway bottom line aml just run your trials with overall survival as the endpoint or health related quality of life or measure healthcare spending directly or measure utilization directly but there's nobody who is sensible who would say you should use EFS as a predictor of how many blood transfusions you already got. Um, that doesn't make sense at all. It's really nonsensical. All right, two more quick items. I know this is the longest monologue in the world. One, threatening public health officials. We have a number of public health officials resigned because they issued um, mask ordinances and they got some death threats. That's really problematic. I mean, super problematic. And, you know, I'm one who thinks that we could have had sort of a le legitimate conversation about this, whether or not the risk benefits and the number of ways you could test it. It could have been a cluster randomized trial and all those sorts of things. But at the end of the day, once some health official makes a call, like it or not, you know, you can object, you can write an article, but to give them a death threat that crosses every line. And the people who do this job, they're not super well compensated. Um, they're usually not being paid as they deserve. Um, it's a, often a thankless job. And if you really scare everyone out of ever taking that job, you're not going to have anyone competent um, have that job. And so that's super bad. Last thing, pembrolizumab. Pembrolizumab was recently approved for MSS, microsatellite stable TMB high 
tumors based on a 20-some percentage response rate, even though most of the tumors enrolled were tumors that you already have a path to get Pembro or Nevo because it's small cell or cervical cancer, so it's unclear what this approval is adding, and then there are very, very few endpoints. But I thought what was super fascinating is that in the TMB low MSS group, the response rate was 6.7%, and the OS was actually longer, um, and that didn't get FDA approval, um, which is really interesting. So like the, 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 the crux that's being cracked here is the FDA is approving nivolumab in small cell based on a 12% response rate, even though we don't know if it improves survival quality of life. Well, we, we do now, but we didn't know at the time. Um, to make a long story short, the crux of the argument is this. The FDA will approve nivolumab in small cell cancer based on a 12% response rate without knowing survival, without knowing quality of life. Presumably, it's up to the patient and the doctor to decide if they're willing to take that risk. But the FDA will not approve TMB low MSS pembrolizumab based on a 6.7% response rate. But what's the difference between a 6.7% response rate and a 12% response rate? Why is a 12% response rate okay for a patient to say, you know what, it's a 1 in 10 chance, I'll take it. The 6.7% is the patient saying, you know what, that's a 1 in 14 chance and I'll take it. Why is 1 in 10 okay, but not 1 in 14? And that is the problem. There's no difference. There's no logical difference between being willing to take a shot at 12% and not being willing to take a shot at 6.7%. If it's a choice, patients should be allowed to choose either choice. And if it's not a choice, if we should demand overall survival and quality of life, then you shouldn't grant either approval. And that is how the FDA is really undercutting themselves. They're undermining their entire legitimacy because they have set regulatory standards that aren't based on living longer. They aren't based on living better. They're based on surrogate endpoints, but they don't take any change in surrogate endpoint. They take a change they think sounds okay. But over time, that has drifted from 20% to 12% with Nevo in small cell lung cancer and in some other examples like and in some other GI malignancies with the checkpoint inhibitors they're taking lower and lower response rates as the cutoff and so someone will reasonably ask why not 6.7% what's the difference there is no difference somebody might be more risk averse and somebody might be less risk averse but it's not your life it's not your choice and so the FDA has created a situation where when you set arbitrary benchmarks there is no rational basis for the cut point, and someone can ask to push the cut point lower and lower. And at some point, you get no cut point at all. And when there's no cut point at all, there's no need to even have you. All you're doing is inserting arbitrary hoops for companies to jump through. You're not ensuring that therapies are effective, and that is the problem. And folks should think twice before doubting me, because there is a vocal contingent from Silicon Valley and one of these names was floated as commissioner before Bologies. And they do not believe the FDA should exist. They believe we should have a Yelp for drugs and let people decide. And when you say 12% is okay, but 6.7% is not, and you cannot give any reason on earth why that is the case, why one is okay and one is not okay, these people will carve you up. They will come and they will show that that is an illogical threshold, and therefore you should be done away with. That's what they're going to do to you. They're going to they're going to push you to extinction. And what I want to do to you is have you set standards that actually ensure drugs let Americans live longer and live better. You need to embrace the folks on our side of the table. We want to raise standards to something that is logical, defensible, consistent, and rational. That way, 
People can't undercut you. But when you set standards that are arbitrary and capricious and ever lowering, they're going to be able to cut your legs out from under you. And that is the fundamental structural problem with regulation right now. All right. On that positive note, we're going to turn to a superb interview with Ian Tannock. He shouldn't need any introduction. He is a legendary oncologist, and you're going to be delighted by what he has to say. And on that positive note, here's Dr. Tannock. All right, I'm here in plenary session, joined via Zoom by Dr. Ian Tannock. Dr. Tannock will need no introduction to this audience. He is a legendary oncologist who's had a long and distinguished career at Princess Margaret. Dr. Tannock is truly a man who has done everything in oncology, from running a successful basic science laboratory um, to being the uh, trialist on pivotal clinical trials, such as the trial that is the reason why we use docetaxel in prostate cancer, um, to in more recent uh, decade, taking an interest in clinical trial methodology, probably a little bit longer than that, um, and the cost of drugs and conflict of interest. And these are all issues I hope to talk about today. Uh, Dr. Tannock, it's a pleasure to have you here. It's nice to be with you, Vinay. Dr. Tannock, um, it is really great to talk to you. Um, and I think uh, the audience is going to be really interested in what you have to say. And, you know, there's so many things that I want to cover with you, but I'm wondering if we could start a little bit sort of at the beginning of your career. So, you know, my understanding is you did your, you're originally from the UK, although you spent uh, some time in the States growing up. Um, you did your medical school at the University of Pennsylvania. And after that, you made the leap to Toronto, where you decided to stay on for residency and for your medical oncology fellowship at Princess Margaret. Um, what was that transition like back in those days? Was it common for, for U.S. trained uh, medical doctors to do um, postgraduate training in, in, in Canada? It wasn't common, but it wasn't unknown. And the systems are similar. So there is reciprocity in recognizing qualifications. I think it was it was partly a um, a medical move, medical scientific move, and it was partly a social move. Like you say, I, I actually grew up in the UK. I did a PhD even in the UK before coming as a postdoc to mm -hmm. to Houston, and went to medical school fairly late. Uh, and I came when we came to the states. I was always already married. My my eldest son was born in in Houston, uh, and my my daughter was born actually in the Netherlands. But before we came, I came to do medicine in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. So my view of American medicine was always that it the the best of American medicine is very very good. I think the education I received at Penn was excellent. Uh, critical, demanding, and I think those those attributes are something that are important. And I think compared with the UK, where the system is more hierarchical, mm -hmm. I think you are respected for what you can achieve rather than you know being uh, a sort of uh, mm -hmm. senior professor and so on uh, and not questioning things. And then I think there's the social aspects. Um, I'm born in Britain. I find some of the things, even though I have many, many American friends, as you know, uh, I find some of the things in the States uh, unpleasant and, and just uh, contrary to, to my sort of wanting a way to live and wanting my children to grow up. Mm -hmm. uh, I find your gun laws, I mean, I've 
yeah. just ridiculous. Right. Uh, I mean, your current political situation, well. Yeah, I think uh, these I, days we're all envious of our friends I, in I think they, yeah. that's particularly bad. But, um, and also the health system. Yeah. Um, I, I, I grew up in, in the UK where they have a public health system. I came to Canada where we have an excellent public health system. It's not without some rough edges, but... Uh, to me, the concept of being in a for-profit medical system was not very attractive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I had already had contacts and friends at Princess Margaret Hospital, Ontario Cancer Institute, had a fine reputation both in science and in oncology. And to me, Canada seemed to be a good compromise between the things I liked in the UK and the like things I liked in the US without some of the things that I disliked in mm. either place. And uh, it's been a good move. I, I've, I've enjoyed my, you know, becoming a Canadian, and that's how I think of myself. I see. And um, you have been in Princess Margaret for a long time now. Um, you did your fellowship training there, um, and then you decided to stay on on faculty. Um, tell me about those early years. This must have been the late 1970s, early 1980s, um, when you were on faculty, um, and and you decided to start a lab. Um, what was the state of oncology like back in those years? Uh, I mean, I think it was the thought I had in going into oncology was that first of all, in my uh, in my PhD and my postdoc, I'd done cancer biology, so I always wanted to have uh, a lab. Uh, I was in a section of experimental radiotherapy when I was working in Houston. My supervisor was Herman Suit, who was a very, very good guy. Uh, sort of retired now in Boston, but, uh, but still living. And people expected me, I think, to do radiation oncology. And many were quite disappointed I didn't do that. But I thought that the potential for making big impacts in the field of oncology was going to be ultimately treatments that would be directed against uh, metastatic disease Mm -hmm. because that's what kills most, not Mm -hmm. all people who have cancer, as as you well know. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's why I decided to do that. I think my training at Princess Margaret was very good. I I had good colleagues and good teachers. Um, And I think one of the things that I was able to bring with a background in science and in uh, radiation oncology was perhaps uh, some critical thought to what was going on then. Mm-hmm. So you asked me how the uh, the field was. Yeah. To me, there were a few outstanding people. I mean, people like Chuck Mortel, for example, yeah. uh, who came to mind, and I had the uh, the ability to meet her. I, for, when I when I joined. Um, uh, we wrote soon after with a, a good friend and colleague of mine, the Basic Science of Oncology textbook, mm-hmm. and I ran a program for our oncology residents and fellows to bring in visiting speakers mm-hmm. and bringing in people like Mortel was great. Yeah. But I think that my impression was that there was a lot already of hype and there was a lot of non-critical thinking. Really? Even uh, back then? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. And I think there was, because uh, it was a time that people like uh, DeVita uh, and so on had made major inroads in curing diseases like Hodgkin's disease and, mm-hmm. and some lymphomas, uh, childhood leukemia, uh, and things like that. There was a, a basic belief that the solid tumors were going to follow suit very rapidly. Right. And... 
a lot of the trials I thought were even at that time were very poorly done. There was an assumption you you, you reported trials with a lot of dropout where people were forgotten. I see, right. The major we still point, struggle with, which we'll talk about. Something we right. still struggle yeah. with, but we're a little bit better now. Yeah. Most most people. Um, the major endpoint was tumor response, right. and my radiation oncologists laugh because anything short of a complete disappearance of tumor to them was a failure. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, we heard people talking about stable disease, not recognizing that many patients with cancer whose disease is growing at an average doubling time of two or three months will be stable for a month without the treatment doing anything at all. Right. So right. I think there were a lot of things that even then concerned me. I see. That's interesting to know because I think, you know, it is just so um, tempting to believe you know, whenever, wherever you are in time to believe that things were better just a while back and, and now we're sort of <laughs> in the worst of it. But sometimes it's refreshing to know that we've always struggled with these things, although there's an ebb and flow to it over time. Um, what made you decide to focus on, in your laboratory, hormone receptor signaling and in your clinical practice on the tumors that are addicted to hormone receptor signaling pathways? I, I don't think I did. I don't I think that's right, Vine. Um My lab over the years focused on uh, microenvironment. Okay. So it, it, in a nutshell, and I always kept my lab small, which I think is is something that I would try to teach younger people who want to be clinician scientists because I've seen so many people, you know, they have a flush of success they and their lab gets bigger and bigger and then it fails. So my lab typically was a postdoc or a clinical research fellow, two graduate students, one technician, maybe sometimes two, but never more than about six people. And my focus was, uh, and it it came from the radiotherapy area, where hypoxia is obviously a major cause of failure. And drug resistance was a topic that pretty much entirely looked at uh, molecular causes, you know, mutation and so on. And while that's important, the drug's got to be sensitive, it's also important that a drug get there. And most drugs, as you know, are much more active against proliferating cells. So mm-hmm. most of the work that we've done, or the people that I've trained in myself, has been in the area of microenvironment and, and drug resistance. I wasn't really involved in, in hormonal agents very much with that. And the main things we showed with emerging techniques was that many drugs have very poor distribution in solid tumors, mm-hmm. so we're failing because the drugs aren't reaching many of the critical cells. And likewise, the, the cells that are resistant may be hypoxic, slowly proliferating, and so on. And then we've looked at ways of trying to circumvent that, only with partial success. And more recent years looking at things like inhibition of autophagy, which is a survival mechanism. Mm -hmm. So that was the lab. In the clinic, uh, I I focused, well, I focused on GU because apart from testis, nobody else was doing it. Uh, And there were, you know, these were the early days where there were a few, Alan Yagoda was at um, Memorial and had first shown evidence that the MVAC regimen could give dramatic responses in bladder cancer, mm-hmm. albeit with some dramatic toxicity, right. yeah. uh, and and so I decided to that I would 
start looking at GU, which led to bladder and, and prostate, kidney much later, and I didn't really make any of the, didn't contribute to any of the major changes in that disease. Um, and in fact, in my, you would call it fellowship, we call it oncology residency here. Fellows are people who come when they're fully trained. Mm -hmm. In my oncology residency, I spent a couple of months working with um, a, a urologist, a uro-oncologist, a guy called Michael Jewett, who remains actually a, a very good friend. I see. It seems to me, you know, one of the points you made was that, um, you know, DaVita um, combination cytotoxic chemotherapy, it did have initial success, pediatric ALL, Hodgkin's disease. And, and then we were so quick and tempted to think that it was only a matter of time before other diseases would so fall. Similarly, it feels as if we repeated that saga in the late 1990s, early 2000s, when Gleevec had such tremendous success. Mm -hmm. And we felt that we'll soon know the tyrosine kinase behind every tumor. And then fast forward another decade, um, checkpoint inhibitors had tremendous success in melanoma and some patients with small, non-small cell lung cancer. And again, the idea was that it was only a matter of time, only a matter of combinations. Mm -hmm. Is this a sort of a recurring theme in oncology that um, it's so easy to believe that my tumor type of interest will be the next to succumb to something new and innovative? Yeah, I think we all want to be optimists, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. so, <laughs> uh, I mean, there have been some very important breakthroughs, some of them, you know, you've mentioned there, but I do agree with you. Uh, I think I think there's a certain naivety, um, and it's perhaps encouraged by you know, some of the companies. I mean, with the Gleevec story, uh, it, perhaps, you know, the, the, the thing shifted very much towards, uh, uh, you know, molecular based molecules away from chemotherapy and that was sensible but there's almost now when you've written about this as 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 of as have i that um you know the there has to be you know if only we knew the mutation that personalized medicine's got to work right. and i think there's been a great deal of slowness despite the evidence that's there for everyone to see that if you look at these very large trials with uh, personalized medicine that really uh, you end up, uh, and the endpoint is usually response rate, that isn't any better than taking the next sort of developed drug off the shelf and right. using it willy-nilly. Now, you can always point to exceptional responders, but these are vanishingly rare. Right. Now, I think that that's well put. That's a topic that I, I want to visit with you. But I guess I, I just want to get a sense before we jump into these topics that I know we could talk all day about, um, a sense of, you know, I guess my question to you is, you know, you're, you're one of the few people I know who has really done a little bit, perhaps a lot of sort of the three major domains of academic oncology, which is you've run clinical trials, you've run a laboratory, and you've also been a student and a critic of policy decisions around sort of cancer drug space. And these days, there is no more an Ian Tannock. There's three Ian Tannocks. There's one person who does the lab work. There's one person who does the trials. There's one person, maybe like me, who does the policy kind of side of things. Um, what, what do you feel, you know, what was the virtue of having done these things? Did, did it give you a broader perspective? Did, did you find you were made connections in ways that even surprised you? Um, or at some times, did you feel spread too thin? Did you feel that it, it has to be split into different people? 
<laughs> Probably all of the above. I, I think you've got to realize that things were very different when, like you said, I came on staff at Princess Margaret in 1978 when I finished my oncology training. Uh, when I went to ASCO, you know, and I'd go to the GU session, for example, and apart from the testis, um, there were probably about 50 people in a room seating, you know, a thousand people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I knew most of them, and most of them knew me. Mm -hmm. I mean, to give you a story, last ASCO, I, I was doing a teaching session, and then I wanted to go to the GU session. And I come to the GU session, which is in this uh, hall, the airy hall or whatever it is that holds, I guess, at least 2,000 people. And a guy at the door says to me, you can't go in, it's full. <laughs> wow. I mean, fortunately, I thought on my feet and just said, uh, uh, I told him a lie that I was presenting. So I <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, but uh, that's the way things have changed. Mm -hmm. So... You know, the ability to, say, lead trials in bladder and prostate cancer or even breast cancer, um, when I was in my younger days in the 80s, there was much, just much, much less competition. I mean, there were still, you know, people who were leading those trials. Many of them were well known. But, you know, I could publish, I mean, our first trial in, in prostate cancer was a simple trial of prednisone, using mm -hmm. it essentially uh, as uh, an androgen inhibitor, mm -hmm. um, just showing that it worked and it decreased adrenal hormones. And we went on from there to do the mitoxantrone and the docetaxone mm -hmm. trials. And, and I mean, having done those, and there not being a lot of competition, and, and the mitoxantrone trial was approved by the FDA, and then... You know, you have the good fortune that your company, which was then Sanofi Aventis, mm -hmm. you would actually come and seek your advice and 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 invite you to to lead a, a much larger uh, trial. Which, uh, fortunately, I mean, the different, you know, the 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 outcome is is hyped. I mean, a three month difference in median survival is not actually massive, but mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's enough to establish a new treatment. So I think that possibility existed then. I was never a star laboratory person. I I always had grants. They were relatively small. I told you my group was small. I published in journals like Cancer Research and Clinical Cancer Research, but I was never a nature science cell type publisher. So, uh, well, I think we did solid work and um, I don't think it, I, I would not be uh, very well known for, for that uh, per se. And I think the, you know, the trials led to the criticism. I mean, I think you probably are more into the policy, but I mean, I, I think it sort of bent over more into policy because policy depends on good mm. evidence-based medicine, right. or it should be, it mm. should do. And the criticism of policy comes from criticism of the evidence. And uh, like you say, we're still seeing trials that are, you know, basically flawed. And unfortunately, um, some of the trials now, I mean, we're seeing some good trials too. I mean, let's say, I mean, in my area of prostate cancer, I mean, there's been remarkable improvement mm -hmm. that's led to real survival and quality of life improvement for people with, for men with prostate cancer. But for many of the trials, 
You know, there are people who are very intelligent and must know are, are lending themselves to work with companies and being persuaded to accept trial designs that are skewed in such a way to give a result that a farmer would like to see. Not always, there's been some good farmer trials too, but uh, but sometimes that's happening, and, and, and I find that very depressing. Yeah, that to me is one of the depressing themes of, of some trials. Um, you know, I think um, you know you're you're absolutely right in the sense that um, there take a field like prostate cancer. There are a number of drugs that are clearly life prolonging agents: abiraterone, enzalutamide. Uh, the use of docetaxel, which we've gotten you know arguably even better at giving it perhaps mm-hmm. sooner um, and in different states. Um, uh, and at the same time, we have a number of drugs in prostate cancer that are very question mark: uh, radium two two three, cipulosal T. Um, uh, and, and, and we have a me too mentality. Uh, there's Enza, but there's apalutamide there, you know, right. yes. <laughs> they're, they're, they're coming fast and furious. Um, and, and I guess the question is, um, you know, when you have a drug that really is active, um, you can get, I feel like people have a license to get away with some sort of sloppiness in trials. I mean, it's good to know a drug is active, but it's even better to know what's the way I can use the drug with the least toxicity, the least duration, but preserve the maximum benefit. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's a principle that's lost because the company's incentive is to use the most drug with toxicity that they don't really care about, a manageable toxicity. Um, and if the benefit is the same or a little bit lower, they don't really care about that. Their goal is maximizing market share. And there's a tension, I think, between trials that maximize market share and trials that minimal, you know, have restraint and carefully use the drug. Um, do, would you agree with that characterization? How do you think about that? I do indeed. Yes, I mean, you know, if you take um, if you take the initial trials, uh, abiraterone and enzalutamide have had very similar paths, but even though their mechanism of action is slightly different, and in every trial after chemotherapy, before chemotherapy, and hormone sensitive disease, all of those trials I think were actually well done. They were initially placebo controlled. They weren't. Yeah. Enza and Abby were never compared head to head, right. and they won't be. Right. But their degree of benefit is about the same. Right. And their overall tolerance is probably similar. Um, my bias is that abiraterone is a bit better tolerated in most men. Enzalutamide-related fatigue has been, uh, has been underemphasized, but mm-hmm. you can use lower doses. The big difference now is cost. Right. And basically, on that basis, I would use abiraterone for everything. Right. Even in trials, you know, for example, enzalutamide, apalutamide, duralutamide, they, they look for a niche. Right. And they do these trials showing that you can, you know, you've got men with rising PSA, with castrate resistant disease, and no overt metastases. And there are good trials showing that these agents delay the advent of metastases, and they're showing now improved survival. So that's a good thing. But all my colleagues say, oh, yes, you've got to use one of those. And I'd say, I'd use abiraterone. I can, mm-hmm. I, can, I can get abiraterone for a factor 10 less in cost. Right. And it's bound to have the same effect. Right. You know, it has the same effect in every other situation. Right. So, uh, but I don't think, you know, that obviously the companies would, would hate for that to happen. 
And I mean, we have a lot of drugs like that. You know, we have a lot of Me Too agents and bisphosphonates. And yes. some bisphosphonates are developed for osteoporosis, others for preventing bone loss and cancer. They're probably all interchangeable. Right. Um, PD-1 inhibitors. Right. We've only got I mean, we've got two out there, and they're equally expensive. But everything that Pembro can do, Nevo can do, even though they're tested in different niches. And hopefully somebody will have the good sense to say oh, there's about 10 of them in development, as you know, that, wow, maybe if we can show that it acts just as well as Pembro or Nevo in a couple of situations, we could then introduce this drug at a, you know, a tenfold reduction in price. Right. And then everybody would... One of the things that I, I, you as a policy person might perhaps know more about this than I is that for every other area of market, there is a relationship between quality and cost. Mm -hmm. And there isn't, uh, and, and as you introduce more options, the cost goes down. So, I mean, if you want to buy a car, you can buy yourself a Porsche for, you know, $200,000 and you'll get a, an amazingly good product, but, uh, you know, your basic Ford or Toyota will take you from San Francisco right. to Los Angeles at right. the same rate, right? right. I mean, reasonable comfort. Yeah. Uh, and there's a huge difference in price. I mean, why isn't it when we, when we introduce these new drugs that somebody doesn't say, well, we could capture a lot of that market if we... We had uh, a good drug that was equal to these more expensive. Yes, and you know I completely agree. It is a it is it, to call it a market is a misnomer because in any it functioning is. market, when there are you know two drugs that compete for the same uh, market share, they compete on price, and that has never, to my knowledge, occurred in cancer medicine. Uh, they compete uh, based on the seduction of uh, key opinion leaders. It's a different uh, whole marketplace. Um, yep. But, you know, one of the things you wrote about, I mean, along these lines of the Me Too mentality, you nicely pointed out that the randomized control trial in the front line of kidney cancer, the new trial people get excited about, is Pembroexitinib, not Pembrosunitinib. And, nope. and that, they're both Pfizer drugs, of course, Sunitinib and Exitinib. Sunitinib, of course, was, until very recently, the standard of care for the majority of patients with um, uh, metastatic kidney cancer. Um, it was a calculated substitution. And, and it's not explained by any of the uh, tyrosine kinase properties of the drugs. It's only explained, as you point out, uh, based on, I believe, the patent length and when the generic drug That's, will come. Uh, yeah, yes. I mean, sunitinib is due to come off patent, I think, uh, early next year in the United States. Mm -hmm. And its price will obviously drop dramatically. There'll be generics. And, you know, it's the axitinib, I think, is patent loss the late 20, 20s, 2028 right. or something like that. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous that this could happen. But uh, you know, what we should be doing is is having, uh, you know, just fairly small trial because you obviously have to find the right dose to put drugs together. But uh, I think that uh, Pembro and Sunetinib will yeah. work just as well as Pembro and Exitinib. Right. I'm... And with no more toxicity if you find the right dose. Right. And of course, the company and some of its uh, people who work with them say, oh, but we did this trial, there was toxicity. Yes, but you know, you, you've got to find the right dose. Right. And I think, um, you know, if we're, I mean, you know, we have, we have many, of course, TKIs used in kidney cancer, uh, exitinib, sunitinib, pazopinib. Um, 
you know, we, we still lack really good head-to-head trials where we're titrating the dose appropriately to see if we can get equal therapeutic effect. There are a lot of people who believe that if you progress on sunitinib, instead of switching to exitinib, you could have always done just as well by continuing sunitinib at sort of the at as high doses you can tolerate. Let's talk for a second about you know, the elephant in the room, which is something that you've courageously written about, but very few people have written about, which is, um, as you point out, the people who are medical oncologists who are often lending their name to these clinical trials, they're very smart people. Um, they've trained at the best institutions and they're very thoughtful oncologists. And yet we see over and over that they are willing to endorse and sometimes even more strongly than that um, to actually sell or to hype um, clinical trials that have some deep fundamental faults and flaws. Um, and, and you have written about the financial conflicts, um, the fact that many of these doctors are deriving a substantive portion of their income from consulting um, with companies. Um, and, and, and I think you've been a little bit even harsher than that. What are your thoughts about the pervasive role of financial conflict, how has it changed over your career um, from when you started to today? Um, was it was this problem always this bad? No, I don't think it was. Um, I, I think there were always some payments made. And I remember Larry Einhorn, who's a good mate of mine, you know, when he became the ASCO president, and I was with him when he'd been elected, and mm-hmm. I said to him, one of the best things you could do, Larry, would be to stop having the Bristol-funded president's yeah. reception at ASCO. I think you should have a reception, but surely ASCO can pay for it. And he said to me, Ian, I've already decided that. It's oh, got to really? stop. Okay. So, yes, it was going on at meetings like, and ASCO was far more, um, and obviously they still derive a lot of benefit right. from that, uh, uh, exhibition hall that uh, you need a dose of ondansetron to walk around, or right. at least I do. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, uh, I think uh, uh, I think that they have cleaned up their act a, a lot in terms of centrally, at least they mm-hmm. keep the companies out of the main part of the mm-hmm. meeting. But the companies are very pervasive. It's very difficult because the the companies now control the drugs. And if you want to do clinical trials, you have to work with companies. But you don't have to take their silver. And um, I mean, let's face it, we're pretty darn well-paid oncologists. I mean, certainly in the Western world. I know it's more difficult in some parts of Europe and mm-hmm. so on where they're not nearly so well-paid. But I mean, people in the United States, Canada, and Britain, etc., they get quite good salaries from Western Europe, and uh, they don't need to take that extra money. I mean, I've my own policy was that I would sit on things like advisory boards if it was a true advisory board, which mm-hmm. I would define as no more than perhaps about eight oncologists advising a company on how to devise a trial. And I wrote with one or two other people, in fact, initially with those two company people, the docetaxel trial, right. and then we had a larger meeting. But you don't have to take money. If they want to you know, give money, I mean, people... You know, I've always put any consultation fees for that in a research fund, and that's enabled me to work and pay a lot of research fellows. And most of my publications have been with the research fellows. I mean, critics would say we're still getting benefit, which is true. But I think it is a little bit different than putting money 
actually into your own pocket. Mm -hmm. Uh, some universities uh, and cancer institutes have now tightened up, and, the, uh, and uh, you have the Sunshine Act in the States mm -hmm. that at least it's moved it to the public. But declaring it doesn't stop right. bias right. being there, and that's pretty darn obvious. I mean, we criticize the. I know you've got a paper you're writing on the Profound trial right. where. Which I, I think is was certainly a skewed trial to make a laparid look right. good, and it was the same in the Poland trial. Yeah, um, that uh, that very well known, in, very intelligent people put their names to this. And actually, if you look at the ESMO the first ESMO presentation of the um, uh, of the profound trial, the list of conflicts of interest is as long as the abstract, if not longer. I mm -hmm. mean, why do people need that? I mean, I can understand. I mean, I think it is different having research funds. Uh, I think it is different, uh, you know, using funds for research because it is difficult with drying up of public funding. But I think personal gain is something that all oncologists should stay away from. Yeah. And I think they can easily afford to. I think that um, I think you're right. I mean, I've said said similar things. And um, I think it's also it, it's the combination of, um, you know, there are real advisory boards, as you note, and then there are sort of token advisory boards. Absolutely. Um, and I think that people forget that you know, if you're an oncologist at, you know, University X and you get invited to a token oncology board and they give you $5,000 and they pretend as if everything you're saying is really, really interesting, the combination of the um, sort of appeal to your vanity and the money, I think is a powerful psychological stimulus to ally yourself with the drug, with the trial, um, to sort of disarm you as a critic of the trial, a potential critic is disarmed, um, and to make you sort of um, a, a marketeer for that, for that product. Oh, it's done purposely. I mean, Vina, absolutely. I mean, it's this is pretty much chicken feet for the mm -hmm. companies, given how much they're now charging for right. their drugs. And if they give, you know, two, three, five thousand, ten thousand a year to uh, oncologists who are, it's very hard for those oncologists to get up and say, look, your drug pricing is obscene. I mean, how can you say that when right. people have been putting money in your pocket? And they not only do it with oncologists, by the way, they do it with uh, patient groups. Yes, uh, And that's even yeah. sadder, you know. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, you know, they give money to patient groups, and then these patient groups should be really the people who are saying, look, this pricing of oncology products is, is ridiculous. But in fact, I find many of them are deeply silent on the issue. And the other Absolutely. thing that they are, they're allied with the industry on is the lower regulatory standards. I think many, many of the patient, and I put the patient in quotes, because some of them are, are to varying degrees, really do represent the interests of the industry, but often they call for lower and lower hurdles to get the drug to I market. Agree. Why, yeah. why, you know, it, it, it's, it's gotten to the point where, you know, a response rate in 40 people, 60 people, that can get you market. But you, it won't be long before somebody says, why 40 or 60? Why not 10? Why not five? Why not two? Why not even one response? You know, and then let's yeah. just, right. And, and I think that that's a perverse incentive. 
Um, I haven't yet studied it. Oh, actually, I'll leave. I'll I'll skip that part because somebody's going to scoop me on this on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think there. Are, I mean, there are things out there. But, yeah, there are things out there. Uh, but I mean, the accelerated or you know these various terms to get uh, rapid approval, right. which is supposed to be then followed by uh, a randomized yeah. trial. Well, we actually wrote about this. I mean, the mayor with Chris Booth, as you know, is a good colleague of mine, and and. Um, and uh, we wrote about this in bladder cancer, for example. I mean, you know, there's one randomized trial that's positive. There, there are another couple of others who are negative. And actually, there was a good one at ASCO this year. It was another positive trial for maintenance uh, uh, immunotherapy after platinum base. But uh, and that looked quite a reasonable trial. But um, you know, they these drugs. There are five. Uh, immuno-oncology drugs approved for bladder cancer, right. only one of which has been shown, had been shown to have efficacy in a randomized trial. Let's talk about something that you have really done wonders for putting on the map in terms of an issue, which is, um, you know, the role of censoring in PFS in several breast oncology trials. And I guess maybe for the listener's background, listeners should know um, that, you know, when you construct a Kaplan-Meier curve at every time point under the curve, uh, there are uh, patients who are at risk, people you follow that far. And there are a few things that um, could have happened that remove you from the population in the Kaplan-Meier curve. One, you could have already experienced the event of interest. Um, two, you could have only enrolled on the study recently. You enrolled two months ago, and now we're at a three-month time point. Um, or three, you're lost for follow-up. You enrolled many months ago, but we don't know what happened to you. Um with overall survival in, in, in randomized controlled trials, we can often do a very good job of not losing people to follow-up. We can ascertain when somebody died, even mm. if they stopped coming to clinic, um, even if they, um, you know, absconded, we can track down, you know, when they passed away and often impute that data. With the endpoint progression-free survival, because uh, it's a composite endpoint that includes radiographic progression, um, if you're lost to follow-up, we can't ascertain the endpoint, and we have to censor those patients, which means we remove well, them. It, it, let me just yeah. interrupt, because it's not only lost to follow-up, it's where people are purposely taken off because they can't tolerate the right. new drug, right? Right. right. So toxicity, so, and they choose not to come back, right? Yeah, both yeah, of those. They yeah, choose. they choose. They may still be quite content to be followed, right? but if they're not taking the assigned drug, they're taken off the trial. And, you know, really in a trial, there should be two ways it fails, right? Either the drug isn't working or else you can't tolerate right, it. Right, right. And you're only considering those people who stay on the trial and, and where progression, uh, it, you know, whether, where they have or do not have progression. And if you go off the trial because of toxicity, you no longer have a randomized trial. And what is amazing to me is how ignorant, you know, well-known oncologists are of this. There are just a large number of trials. There was Bolero 2 with yep. Everolimus. Yep. There was the uh, recent trial Solar of one. Yeah. Um, Solar, Solar 1, one yeah. which is, you know, these drugs that can't be tolerated, and yet you take those people off, and so you're comparing the people who could tolerate the drug with most of the controls, because they don't usually stop the control tr treatment for toxicity, and that's not any lot longer a randomized trial. And right. yet the FDA, the EMA hasn't realized this, and the people who uh, present these trials don't seem to uh, be aware of this, or at least choose not to be aware of this. 
and even the people who discussed them. I mean, I was at the uh, ESMA where the Solar One was discussed. Not a mention of informative censoring, even though there was clearly a huge difference in dropout in the two arms. And let's unpack that a little bit more for the, the listener. So I guess, you know, the assumption of the Kaplan-Meier method is that it's okay to censor patients if it's uninformative, if the likelihood that the censored patient will experience the event of interest is the same as the patients in whom you have follow-up. But the exactly. moment you start censoring people because they couldn't tolerate the medicine, you're not censoring people who are on average the same. You're often censoring people who are feeling sick, perhaps because there's tu- their tumors are growing. They are um, they are physically debilitated in some way, um, perhaps because the cancer is getting worse, or they have um, sort of poorer um, uh, reserve, physiologic reserve. And those people may be much more likely to experience the event of interest than just the person in whom you've ascertained the data. And so you're removing people from one arm more than the other. That's the sort of differential mm-hmm. part you're pointing to. It's not happening in the control arm. It's happening in the treatment arm. The people you're removing from the treatment arm are probably more vulnerable people on average, and the people you're looking at are probably going to do better than um, than the control arm, even if the drug is purely a mild poison. Yep, no, that's exactly right. And, you know, the way around, I mean, one way around this, I, mean, I agree, I think overall survival is the, right. is the key uh, here that should be used in most diseases, and we, and we can talk about you know with diseases with quite a long survival how that might or might not be difficult. One way around it is instead of using profession-free survival, is use time to treatment failure. Right. Okay. And yet the FDA, in its wisdom, years ago said no, they wanted progression-free survival, not time to treatment failure. And time to treatment failure would be you go off treatment either because you progress or because you couldn't tolerate the drug. Hmm. And then, you know, at least you tend to retain some sort of balance. That's interesting. I guess the other way that you could tackle it would be progression-free survival is, of course, new lesions, growth of lesions 20% from nadir or death. You could just add a fourth endpoint called discontinuation to the PFS, make it a composite endpoint of the time to one of the four things, and that might be a way to sort of, yeah. Well, I mean, you convert it into time to treatment failure by doing that. Yeah. No, I, I I agree, but I think it's um, I think it is a great pity that uh, this uh, that people just don't seem it's been pointed out by several people. We have a specific piece on it in Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology. I'm not sure if that's out yet. But, okay, uh, I look forward to so, reading that on on censoring, imbalance censoring. Oh uh, yeah, it's specifically about informative censoring. Yeah, you've had a few. I mean, you and uh, a, a physician uh, Templeton, is it? Uh, yeah, you wrote yeah, one yeah. a few years ago in the Annals of Oncology. Um, you yeah. recently wrote about it, I think, in your editorial on on bad trials in Annals of Oncology. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Anu Templeton was one of my fellows, and he he's now back in Switzerland doing great things. I see. Now, that's terrific. Let's talk for a minute about um, the limits of personalized oncology. Um, you know, it's so funny. Maybe the year was, what was it, 2016 or 2017? Um, you know, you and uh, John Hickman had a lovely paper in the New England Journal, Limits of Personalized Oncology. I had written very similarly at the same time, sort of in nature, um, the precision oncology mm-hmm. illusion. Um, mm-hmm. Both of us were, you know, we were both had our hands on the elephant's trunk. I mean, I think we're both sort of in similar, similar space. 
Um, and I guess maybe to frame this sort of discussion a little bit is to point out that, you know, both you and I are going to agree that there are a number of drugs that target, um, you know, genome-driven abnormalities in cancer medicine that are beneficial. The EGFR yes. drugs in lung cancer, BRAF drugs in melanoma. Um, but increasingly in oncology, we're seduced by the idea that we're going to sequence in broad panels people with all sorts of tumor types. We're going to find a single mutation or a handful of mutations, and we're going to come up with a cocktail of personalized drugs or the, you know, the purple pill for the patient, and we're going to give the, the right pill to the right patient based on their genomic profile, irrespective of tissue of origin. And, and both you know your paper and my paper, we were kind of a little bit skeptical that this is a viable strategy. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what brought this issue, you know, to your attention and what are some of your thoughts on it? I think what brought it to my attention, and I think the same sort of stimulus probably enters both of our minds, is that when you see something that is being overhyped, and even in our cancer center, you know, we we had a campaign based from our foundation based on personalized medicine. I really disagreed with the with the head of our foundation that raises money. Uh, and so when I thought about it, I mean, you, the thing is to look at the evidence. And the evidence is that, and they had a big program at Princess Margaret, and I was referring patients in the early days to it, um, but when you actually look at the number of patients going in and the number that you can actually characterize, which is perhaps about 40%, 50%, and then you look at the number where there is a drug that at least nominally attacks the mutation that is present, and then the number that get it because other things happen, right. and then you get... Uh, uh, you come down to a response rate that's generally, with those going in, less than 10%. And, of course, one of the things that happens is people forget the initial right, denominator, denominator, the shrinking right. denominator, which has been a problem in trials for a long time. And then you have to th start to think, well, why, why is the situation uh, like that? I think there are two major problems in relation to it working. Uh, one is the limitation on targeted agents and their toxicity, so the difficulty of combining even two of them, but more than two of them. Uh, and, and that is a big problem, and the fact that tumors are very good at becoming resistant to more or less everything we do, so even if you do have an initial effective drug, it doesn't last very long. But then the biggest problem, which is emerged since 2011 is intratumor heterogeneity. <clears throat> so when people send off their tumor, and for $1,000, and many of them are doing this now, it's not a huge amount of money in the scheme of things, and they get a sequence, and they say, I've got my tumor sequence. Well, of course, they don't. They only have their the sequence of one little part of their tumor. And the person who's done the most on this and may yet get a Nobel Prize for it eventually is Charlie Swanton. I don't know if you know Charlie in, yeah. in London. But he's done great work on this. And the initial paper, the Gerlinger paper, which I think was published in New England in 2011 with showing intratumor heterogeneity in five kidney cancer right. cases, uh, was the most uh, cited paper of that year in the whole New England Journal. And he was a resident at the time, oh, so wow. a resident in oncology or fellow in oncology. 
So uh, Marco Gerlinger had this paper, but it was Charlie Swanton's lab that this was done in. And since that time, intratumor heterogeneity has been shown to apply to every tumor that you could think of. There are some tumors like where a particular mutation is dominant, as happens with, uh, you know, the PCR able and, and imatinib and, and later drugs, uh, where you can have big effects. And and her two, obviously, in breast cancer, it's not people still die of her two related disease, but clearly we have therapies that improve survival. And clearly there are, and BRAF in melanoma, there are a few sort of group mutations where attacking them at least prolongs survival, even if it doesn't cure things. But this concept of this individual mutation is just has not worked. I mean, like you say, you, you find a mutation, it will apply to one part of the tumor, which is why only a small percentage probably of the tumors respond in the first place. And if they do respond, they rapidly become resistant. And even if you could you know, take different parts of the tumor, which some people are trying to do when they find four or five different mutations, we don't have the ability of putting together targeted agents, molecular targeted agents, to attack four or five mutations. Even two of them is difficult. Right. Uh, I mean, when targeted agents first became available in, you know, I can remember this sort of process happening. I mean, there was this thought that they were going to completely replace chemotherapy. Right. They were going to be far less toxic. Right. Well, you know, that is, I mean, some of them are good, but uh, I could tell you as a GU oncologist where I would see in a clinic, you know, elderly men on docetaxel and middle-aged people on sunitinib. Right. I can tell you which of them was unhappier. Right, right. right. It was the sunitinib right. people, not right. the docetaxel people. I mean, not that that drug doesn't have toxicity, but... Uh, but the fundamental difference is, is that, you know, we moved from um, a CTCA grading scale that was developed for drugs that were given cyclically. Um, exactly. You know, every three weeks. Acute every two, toxicity. Acute toxicity. We're grade three, four, few days, then it gets better. That's what you're looking at. And we've taken that same scale and applied it to a drug taken, um, you know, for three, four consecutive weeks um, with a two-week holiday, or in some cases, indefinitely, always on, um, mm -hmm. you know, a TKI always on. So grade one toxicity or grade two diarrhea that's day in and day out, that's unremitting, is often much more, I think, intolerable than, uh, you know, even a grade three event that lasts for a few days, but then you have two and a half good weeks. Yeah, or you get it. I mean, we we all learned as oncologists how to handle uh, an acute infection right. due to septic neutropenia, right. and the vast majority of those patients, you know, they spend small amount of time on antibiotics and in, and uh, and they get better. But like you say, I mean, uh, grade two diarrhea, grade two fatigue, grade two nausea going on indefinitely is a horrible quality of life. And in the wake of Gleevec, my understanding is that um, there were a number of studies that did try to combine TKIs together, um, but almost universally in phase one testing, they met with uh, um, high rates of DLT at early dose levels. Um, you're nodding your head. Uh, that, they're, that often combining these drugs is very intolerable or it cannot even proceed. That's true. I mean, there isn't as much published, and I yeah. think a publication has probably been suppressed, but suppressed, there are yeah. a few publications showing how difficult it is to combine uh, molecular target agents, even even ones of different type. I mean, yeah. 
you know, exactly. we talked earlier about uh, pembrolizumab uh, acts, isn't it? Well, you you still have to you have to reduce the dose of the TKI in that situation. Right. Um, and a few years ago, people thought you could combine ipi and venmorafenib in uh, melanoma. Mm-hmm. Uh, then in phase one, it was halted for hepatotoxicity, which came out of nowhere. You know, it would have been unexpected just from looking at the profiles of both yeah, those. Yeah, I know. It's sometimes been yeah. unpredictable. You're, you're absolutely right. And those are both fairly toxic drugs. Yeah. Um, but to, to, to talk about this, this personalized medicine idea, I mean, I guess one of the things that, you know, maybe we both and others who have talked about this have run up against is some, you know, on some of your criticism, when you talk about censoring, you talk about a bad trial, bad control on bad design. Um, the only person who might get a little bit upset with you is the industry. They're the ones who run the trial. But when you start are critical of perhaps the limitations of the idea that broad genomic panels will be a panacea not only do you run the ire of the industry, but also many, many academic medical centers whose philanthropic side is just so wedded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I read the story of your involvement of that in Portland, right? Didn't you <laughs> run up against a state senator who was criticizing you or something? That's, I, I, well, I guess I would say that, yes, I've, uh, I've faced my fair share of critics um, on this issue that I thought, you know, it's the single most polarizing thing that I've worked on is work just asking, you know, why why don't we do better studies in this space? But you're right. Yeah, it's led to it, it had all sorts of repercussions. It's almost like attacking motherhood. Now, fortunately, here <laughs> we've changed uh, yeah. our Princess Margaret, you know, and people like Lillian Sue and, uh, yeah. uh, uh, and others who, who ran uh, that trial, Phil Bedard and so on. I mean, they're very sensible, critical yeah. people, and uh, they certainly now backed up. I mean, Princess Margaret, it was a reasonable thing to try. We all thought it was a reasonable thing to try back in, you know, 10, 15 years ago, and we supported it and, and so on. But the experience is the same everywhere. But it's still going on. Yeah, it's still going on. Uh, yeah. And the reports are still coming out with uh, with hype. I mean, the recent one was this pancreatic uh, uh, tumor. Oh, yes. Know Your Tumor Registry. Uh, by yeah, Michael no, Pishevin yeah. from Georgetown. Yeah, Lancet Oncology. Oh. Ridiculous study. I mean, I mean yeah, of, of thousands. The response rate was two point something right, percent. Right, yeah. That's what people forget is that, um, I mean, let's to, just to flesh out to listeners, you know, if you have a thousand people who come to you um, and they say, I want you to do something good for me, 500 of them, you shuttle down this pathway of getting this, you know, tumor profiling. These studies show over and over again that a sizable fraction of people will pass away while they're waiting for the report. And yes. every one of these studies does not include them in the denominator. They, you know, they only look at of the people who got the targeted drug, um, how do they do? But you have... Mm-hmm. You have done, you know, the person who seeks out your care, who passed away while waiting for the report, they're not going to be too happy that, um, you know, that, the, that, that you're citing data that excluded them. Um, I, I often think that if you took, if you gave me a thousand people and we divided it up and I was only allowed to use drugs that were uh, FDA approved before 1995, and you're allowed to use any drug you want and do whatever genomics you want, I will beat you in terms of overall survival um, because I won't wait. I will give treatments right away. Um, and, and, and this is a, this know your tumor registry is just, uh, you know, I think um, uh, hype masquerading as science that's trying to justify doing yeah, this Yeah, well, there's also quite a bit of conflict of interest in that yeah. trial too. No, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, I'm sorry it's like that. Yeah. Um, 
but you know, it's still going on. I, I mean, I do certain reviews of cancer centers, and in December, uh, or late fall, I spoke at the British um, uh, cancer meeting, the NCRA meeting, and uh, you know, they asked me to comment on a session, but basically, they several groups were doing the same thing. Yeah. I mean, learning more about the tumor is fine, uh, and genetics helps. I mean, I think moving to proteomic profiles, I mean, seeing what the genes do might give you some new avenues and certainly can, I mean, I certainly never criticize research that taught us more about you know the the biological properties of tumors, but uh, as a treatment, it has not worked. There was the large French study, which mm -hmm. both John Shiver. Hickman and yeah. I reviewed and wrote an editorial on. But I mean, <laughs> the message changes completely because when you actually put in that missing denominator, the results are very, very different. Now, what about? Um, I'm curious, what has been your um the professional reception to your work. I mean, these days, I think it is good. Um, these days, uh, I, I just saw you and congratulations celebrated in, you know, uh, it's stories of, you know, 20 really marvelous contributors to ASCO and they featured your story alongside, you know, many other distinguished voices. But I wonder, was it always um, so celebrated um, to ask these tough questions that you've been asking now for, you know, several decades? Or um, ha has the response to your work changed? Or or was it always sort of cordial because people knew you as a, a laboratory researcher and a trialist as well? How has been your, your reception over these years? I think it's been mixed. Um, obviously, when you, when you criticize uh, directly a trial that somebody else has authored, you know, people, at least for a while, are going to feel slighted, and they're, they're going to look at ways of criticizing. I mean, I, I know Johan de Bono very well. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Johan has said to me in the past that I was one of his models of developing, but you know, and he's one of the brightest, most cultured men that I know. And yet, mm -hmm. you know, he was the first author right. on that profound, profound trial. Profound he was extremely bad. critical mm -hmm. of the article that John Hickman and Rye wrote in the New England Journal. I well, I, 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 when I discussed it, I said, I don't really think you read it closely. <laughs> so sometimes that happens. Generally, it hasn't come down usually to personal uh, criticism. There are one or two people I won't name where perhaps that might have. But generally, I've got on reasonably well with my colleagues. I think some of them probably think, oh, there's that guy again. You know, he's always criticizing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sounds but, familiar. <laughs> um, the companies, well, of course, the companies often, I'm sure they put pins in wax and effigies. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I have, uh, I have worked with some companies, as you know. I mm. worked with uh, Sanofi Aventis, later uh, uh, Sanofi on, on, on the Dosatax Ultra. Um, on the other hand, I think the companies aren't stupid, and sometimes they you know, they recognize that if you have somebody who's critical and uh, 
they give you comments about a trial that the trial can be approved. So sometimes that happens. I mean, I have heard stories. I remember I was soon after I retired, I, I went to Singapore for two weeks as a visiting professor. And, and one of the guys there said, well, we did try and get money from companies, but uh, they, you weren't the person that came top of their list. You know? <laughs> I see, I see, yeah. And, I, and they said, I'm sure you're very proud of that. <laughs> But that's I, but I but I think um, that that's good to know. I mean, I think um, you know one of the things that has I I mean I believe it's changed, but I wonder how you feel is the FDA standard for regulatory approval. I believe is more permissive today than it was even a decade ago. Yes, um, and and you know recently somebody asked me um, sort of off the record about uh, an investigational drug. And they said, you know, you're uh, a very, you know, you're often a critic of, of studies. And so I want to ask you, um, you know, I have this drug. This is the situation. Um, what response rate do you think I, you know, we need to get approved? Do you think uh, it should be 60% or 50%? And then I heard the story and I said, you know what, to get approved, you probably just need a 20% response rate. And they're like, you're saying something even lower than than our experts and who we've consulted. And I said, well, um, you know, I, I'm saying that because not because I believe that that's the right number, uh, but because I believe that the FDA will grant you that approval approval at that number. Um, and I think that was that was kind of, it kind of says, um, you don't really need a good critic if the FDA is going to approve everything. Um, what do you think about EMA and FDA over the last few decades? I agree that I think they've got far too permissive. I mean, they've got pressure from patients, right? The pressure from patients is, well, look, if it works for some, it can work with me. And there's some misunderstanding of what a response rate means. Right. I mean, you're probably aware of studies showing that people go into phase one. Chris Doherty in Chicago has done these types of studies. Uh, you know, they think they, they're going to be cured, whereas the reality, right. of course, is incredibly uh, different. Um, so um, I think that really you do need to have stronger evidence that a drug is really helping for it to be marketed, and and the follow-up, this follow-up that you uh, you think you're going to do a randomised trial, well, it almost never happens. And it's very hard for it to happen if a drug is marketed because people don't want to go into a, a control. So right. um, so yeah, I think it, I think that is a pity. I mean, there's got to be some balance. I mean, if you're dealing with a rare tumour. Or if you've got a subgroup that does amazingly well, sure. even if it is based on a, a, a post hoc, a sort of you know non long uh, short term endpoint like response rate, I think that's very different. You can always look at cases on on merit, but you know if you take metastatic bladder cancer that I talked about earlier, mm -hmm. and the median survival is about eighteen months. It mm -hmm. doesn't take very long to, measure to do survival, a yeah. good right. randomized trial. So as as to be honest, the Javelin trial, which was presented in the plenary session of the recent ASCO, I haven't looked at it in detail, but, but uh, uh, looking at the presentation, I mean, seems like a well-done, reasonable trial. And we shouldn't forget that there are well-done, reasonable trials. Yeah. Um, so, and that, I think that is, that is very different from giving, you know, approval for some PDL1 inhibitor on the basis of a response rate and never, or never doing a randomized trial, or even worse, some of them being negative. Right, as we've seen with HCC and some other examples. But, you know, I mean, in my mind, 
what's interesting to me is, um, you know, I mean, of course, I, I agree with you, uh, of course, that there will always ne- need to be flexibility in regulatory decision making. And there's never going to be uh, sort of a rule that says every single situation requires RCT with o- survival benefit. No. That's that's not tenable. On the other hand, you know, two thirds of drugs come to market without any survival benefit or quality of life benefit. They've been on the market for a decade and very rarely do we learn that post market. So there are many drugs that we just tolerate response rate and PFS. And I guess in my mind, the challenge for a regulator, which maybe they don't see is it's easy for for me and I like to criticize them for, you know, not demanding a higher regulatory standard. But I want to think about the opposite situation. Somebody from the other side is going to cut their legs out from them. By that, I mean, there's somebody out there with a drug with a 16% response rate. And they're going to ask the question, if you'll approve 18% response rate, why not 16? Now, in you know, checkpoint inhibitors, we're down to 11% or 13% get approval. So they're going to say, if 13% can get approved, why not 9%? And then it, then somebody said, you know, we approved a drug with 9% had, had, had grade 5 AE. That was a recent approval. Um, somebody's going to say, why not 12% grade 5 AE? Why not 14%? And so I feel like the FDA is pitching their tent on the side of a mountain. They're going to slide down. And 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 the nice thing about when you prove survival or quality of life benefit is that, you know, you have sort of a, a philosophical uh, flat part to put your tent on. Um, when you start accepting sort of just a slippery slope of surrogate endpoints, there's no limit to the lower bound. And somebody's going to say, you're just stifling my innovation. Why not go a few points lower? Let patients decide. Who are you to decide? Which is the argument that the FDA uses. Yeah. No, I I agree with everything you say. I mean, I think the standard for common diseases should remain a randomized trial. In most of them, I mean, there's been a remarkable ability to do randomized trials, mm-hmm. even in subgroups. I right. Mean, even in, you know, yes. ALK inhibitor lung cancer. Now, admittedly, with PFS as an endpoint, but with and I mean, I'm willing to accept it if there if there are limitations on what you can do and if the difference is good, provided that you rule out things like informative sensory. Right. But I mean, the fact that, you know, they would accept trials like Polar, like Solar One, right, right. Uh, like yeah. Profound, yeah. as reason for marketing when there are clearly big yeah. holes in the way the trials are done. I think they should have said to... You know, AstraZeneca with Profound. Okay, Elaparib clearly has got activity right. in um, HDR, uh, prostate in, cancer, in DNA repair deficient yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, cancers. But look, you know, your your patients hadn't had standard treatments, right. at least half of them. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd love to see somebody do a trial of Elaparib versus carboplatin. You know? Yeah, I would love to see it. I, I would, I expect Elaparib will lose significantly to carboplatin in my well, opinion. Well, they'll certainly lose on cost. That's <laughs> it'll for lose sure. on cost, yeah. I think <laughs> it, it would lose on efficacy too is my bet. You know, in recent years, I know that you are certainly, uh, you know, we can say you're retired, but it's hard to say you're retired when I think you're almost as busy as you ever were. You're just doing different things. Um, But I often see you, um, you know, investing significant time and energy in doing sort of global outreach and education. And I, the last thing I wanted to ask you, you know, before I, before I uh, let you go and thank you for your time, um, is if you might talk a little bit about, um, you know, 
What have you found from your recent work in, I guess, the last five years or so running courses globally? I know you participate in some courses in India. Um, I know you've gone to the Middle East a couple of times. Um, it's it's a real service, I think, for the trainees there in these places. Um, I wonder what you get out of it, what you feel um, has come from it. Yeah, I, I do like doing this and I, I've always enjoyed teaching. And uh, I think my career has been built on the shoulders of uh, trainees. And we've had this incredibly successful uh, clinical research fellows program at Princess Margaret. Mm -hmm. There are about mm -hmm. 60 of them there now. And I would, throughout my career, supervise no more than two at a time. I and see. Many of the first authors are those. I know that's true of you too. Um, so I get a lot of uh, I, I get a lot of pleasure uh, out of teaching and I get a lot of pleasure out of seeing people then proceed to do other things. One of the things that I have found is that despite the resources being more limited in places like India, Pakistan, Vietnam, Nepal, other Kenya, I've been, um, the, the actual native intelligence and often knowledge of the people that I interact with in these places is very good. I mean, of course, like everywhere else, it's it's variable, and the people to some extent are selected. I mean, people trained at the Tata are different to people trained in some of the, uh, mm -hmm. uh, the poorer places in India, but there's extremely intelligent people there. The other concept is there's the ability to do trials, and I think we're going to see more and more of that, in these countries that can assess things like cost and you know cost is inversely uh, proportional to accessibility mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and and so I think there's amazing potential in doing that um, so yes I, I mean and of course one of the things I can't do right now I mean I, I don't want to do zoom courses but uh, uh, and I have chaired over the last three years the ASCO um, it's now called the uh, Edu International Education Study Group, and I, I continue to be involved with with those. We do a variety of courses in different countries, and some of those we maintain mentorship. So I think that's very satisfying, and uh, and it gives you a way of looking at things differently. I mean, you know, if you go to a country like India, you know, there are very few people that are going to access right. PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibitors. Right. And so, you know, you have to start asking questions in different different ways. I've been trying to persuade them to do a trial where, you know, they they take a PD-1 inhibitor and, and, you know, give it once every three months at about, you know, a fifth of the dose and, mm -hmm. uh, because the original yeah. uh, evidence that the doses, about the doses you need are, are, are lacking. Yeah. And there's good evidence that much lower doses and less frequent administration could probably work just as well. And you're only going to get those trials done in, in places like that. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, a good colleague of mine, C.S. Promish, who's who's now the director of the Tata, he's took, taken over from Raj Badway, has set up this Indian trials group, and and they're doing, you know, they're really doing some some great stuff. Yeah, so. I've been impressed by many of their studies, um, particularly, you know, this plenary session we had the trial of removal of the primary breast tumor and local regional treatment mm. in metastatic breast cancer. That was done by the Tata group a few Absolutely. years ago, right? Absolutely, it was done by the Tata group. Yeah, well, there were two trials that gave yeah. slightly different results, and right. this was. This was done, I guess, to try and resolve them. And then I actually chair the um, uh, the data monitoring committee for their trials 
of using vinegar to screen for cervical oh, cancer. Oh, you did. Uh, the Shastri study, the JNCI yeah. paper. Oh, that was a good one. Yeah. That was also an yeah, ASCO plenary. I was sharing it then, but oh, I later I took that on. Oh, and, I see. You know. And so, you know, they. I think they do great studies. And, yeah. Uh, and they have the, they really have the potential to do them. And, you know, with resources that are far less than you or I have in North America. Right. A, a little bit of research funding will go a long way in many of these places. Well, Dr. Tanik, this has been, you know, really fascinating to sort of get to hear about your thoughts on so many of these topics that I, you know, I've been a, a long admirer of your uh, of your writings and lectures. And I would I would tell people that it was um, it still is. It's not easy to see some of your lectures. You know, um, some people, there are a lot of recorded videos out there. Uh, uh, there are not too many of yours. I, I believe I is probably, that right? Yeah, I haven't really looked. I think there are a few that people tell me about. There are few. Uh, yeah, but they're uh, they're hard to get to. I mean, a lot of them are behind, you know, ask go, you know, you have to log in or, or Esmo, you have to log in, but they're always spectacular, um, really thoughtful. And I guess, um, you know, I think that's so important in oncology. I guess I would say that my favorite thing about oncology, you know, is obviously I think the, the, the day-to-day patient care is what I really like about it. Um, but my favorite thing about the research side of things is the sort of breadth of kind of things we get to think about. You know, we get to think about everything from drug delivery to dosing to how do you run the study. Um, and and it is a constant challenge to try to try to think about it better and, and try to try to articulate it better when you try to teach it to somebody. Um, and so I've always admired how well and it's how effortlessly it seems like you do those things. Um, it's not really effortless. <laughs> it's not. It takes a lot of time to think no, how you want to do yeah. it. It always takes effort. Yeah. yeah. Now I've admired. I have likewise admired your writing. It's funny. I saw a paper come up when you know some sent me a summary the other day of uh, history of surrogate endpoints approved by the FDA, and I said that's got to be a V-Day press. I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that wasn't. Yeah, we've done a lot of work. I don't know about that oh, particular yeah. one, but yeah, we've done a lot of work on surrogate endpoints. Um, I got very interested in it. Um, you know, of course, it goes back to that legendary sort of Charles Mortel paper. You know, we started by mm-hmm. talking about Mortel. Um, you know, Mortel to me sort of embodied a lot of the things that you embodied. You know, Mortel was somebody who was... Well, he was a role model for me. Oh, he was? He, he was very critical of the industry. I mean, I think... Oh, and, yes. And he gave him hell. Um, he was quick to acknowledge when clinical trials had shortcomings or deficiencies. Um, you know, when Latro was a, a big, uh, uh, highly promoted, he was the one that said, let's settle this once and for all and show response rate is essentially 0% with Latro. And he pretty much killed that. Um, he did a number of really good studies and always sort of a proponent for carefully measuring and carefully thinking about your work. Um, and, and I guess, um, hopefully that, you know, in the future, there'll be more people like you, like Dr. Mortel, um, like Bernie Fisher, who, you know, carry forward this idea. Um, but I think, um, it's a tough time to do it, especially with the sort of omnipresent role of the industry and, the the key opinion leader. So, um, we shall see yeah. where oncology will go. Yeah, one of my first askers, I heard Mortel talk about the uh, 5-FU levamisole yes. adjuvant therapies, yeah. and he put up this slide, cost of levamisole to an American sheep. I don't know what the number was. I've forgotten. $5. Cost of levamisole to an American cancer patient, $300. Yeah. No, that was <laughs> a great know? example. Yeah, that was the one that where was, 
he he ran the Levamisol trial, and it was it was heavily federally funded. And when they raised the price after the positive results, he was furious. And yes, he, he was. Yeah, he really took them to task. These days, I you you will I I mean you'll hear a little bit of empty rhetoric about it, but you'll never see anyone. Um, really furious. I mean, I've I've said before. I think that um, if 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 somebody is a leader in in a type of cancer and they really are offended by the high drug price, um, they cannot simultaneously take personal payments because the high drug price is it, it becomes the personal payment. And if they Absolutely. really had a problem with the high drug price, they should refund the personal payment and say lower the price. Yep, I agree with you. Well, Dr. Tanak, thank you so much for doing this, and I look Very forward happy. to um, you know the next. Uh, uh, the the next uh, the next paper that uh, you put out there, I'll be I'll be looking for it. <laughs> Likewise, take care, Vina. Bye bye. You've been listening to season two of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klosner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening. <laughs>